Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. It is Wednesday morning, October the 12th, 843-661-0937. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. Good morning, Freedom Philly loving <laughs> Freehold Oh, he's, Yano. He's got that mic, oh, mic like on that. this morning. Yeah, and he's yeah, laughing. Yeah. And Philadelphia having, Freedom. Having a good time over there. I expected that to be the intro this morning <laughs> by Elton John. Philadelphia Freedom. Um, so the all the number one seeds, or all the, all the top seeds won except the Braves, right? Uh, the Astros pulled one out of their rear end. Um, why do you pitch to that guy? I mean, he's too good. I mean, you just don't, you, good managers make their mind up going into a, into a game or a series. There's a guy on the other side that's just not going to beat me. I don't care what the circumstances. I don't care what the situations are. And the Alvarez kid from from Houston is that good a hitter. I mean, Freehold's shaking his head. I mean, I'm not an Astro fan. You're not. But I've watched enough of them play. You don't mess around with him. I mean, he is right. that good a hitter, and um, they go in and bring up. I mean, I, I would just – somebody would have hit a grand slam and beat me by another run. What is it, I'm 7-6? to six? Somebody would have beat me 8-6, to six, but he would not have hit. <laughs> he, there's no need in him carrying his bat to the, to the plate. I mean, just, hey, uh, um, go to first. I mean, we're not messing with you. But sometimes um, testosterone gets in the way, and the manager says, I think I got a lefty that could get him out. Don't take the chance. Um there's a little bit of masculinity in saying, I'm not fighting this fight. You know, I'm not battling this battle. I'm not messing with that guy. You sit in these rooms, you have these meetings, you critique, you handicap, you um, you scrutinize, you prepare, you dissect, you do all these things, and you come out of that meeting basically saying that, I'll give you an example real quick, Gamecock Tigers, you ready? In Clowney's junior year, might have been his the, the last year Clowney played college football. That would have been his um, junior year. So the last year Clowney played football, Chad Morris – made his mind up as Clemson's OC, we can block him with one. We can block him with our tight end. We can block him with our tackle. And you can't. I mean, nobody had done it all year. I mean, he's somewhat of a freak in college football. So what makes you think? But Chad Morris's offense was going to be more effective the more players. In other words, if you keep a, 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 you know, a receiver or a fullback or an H-back in to help with your tackle or tight end and double-team Clowney, then that's one less player in the pattern. That's a little less chance you're successful with, with pass routes. In other words, um, you make it easy for the Gamecock backside of their defense. But Clowney had, what, five sacks, four sacks in one game? He had numerous disruptions and blow-up plays and whatnot. And our good friend Thomas Hunter, who Thomas and I have talked a lot about Gamecock football, Tiger football, he played at Clemson. Um, Thomas texted me in the first quarter, said, you know, if we try to block that guy with one, it's going to be a long night. And Chad Morris just made his mind up that I'm going to stick with my game plan, and my game plan is not double-team that guy um, because I think we can block him with one. And Clemson's offense just never got in gear, and it was largely because of Jadavion Clowney just blowing every play up. And um, I mean, there are times you just got to admit, my guy's not as good as that guy. There's no shame in that. To me, it's the, it's the genius of being a, you know, a coach. Uh, Alvarez is too good a hitter for my left-hander to get out. I'm just not going to throw him a strike. Um the other guy may hit it out of the world, and we may lose eight to six, but we ain't losing seven to six <laughs> with that guy hitting a three-run homer, two outs, bottom of the ninth. Um, you just—that's just a big, big mistake. Now here's here's the Braves' problem. You ready, Riff? Yep. Let's I mean, hear I, it. I, I figured I it out. Hear it. Let's fix it. When you go in a five-game set, seven-game set, three-game set, you throw your ace if you can in game one. You just do. Um, the Braves' ace is not as good as everybody else's. The Braves staff, Real said it earlier, they have as deep a staff as anybody in baseball. They have as quality a staff as anybody in baseball. But their one is not as good as everybody else's one. 
Max Fried is marginal in big games. He's very average in big games. Yeah, I heard the guys on the radio broadcast saying he was just coming off the flu. Remember, he got sick during a game he uh, did. last week. He did. Um, well, I mean, if that's the case, why do you throw him? Well, that's, you know, if Strider can Strider Obviously pick, wasn't ready. Yeah, and then Strider's oblique or whatever is, is goofed up here. Um, but it's still going to be a good series because the Phillies aren't a dominant team. I mean, the Phillies are a good team. But but the Braves won 102 baseball games, not because their number one starter is light years better than everybody else's, but the depth of their pitching staff pays great dividends through a 162-game season. But I've watched Freed a half dozen times in big moments. He has failed to meet that moment as much as he has met that moment. And I just think there's – um I mean, the guy from Philadelphia was just better yesterday and freed struggled maybe he's not over the flu maybe yeah but I've, I've watched him in these big moments in these big games and at times he answers the bell but at times everybody answers the bell but other times he just does not and um I mean, there's a reason the dodgers are a higher seed one there's a reason the um the astros are a higher seed one there's a reason the um the other series which is it uh the yankees the yankees were the high seed in one the braves play the entire seed season to get that uh, home field advantage and a higher seed and um and they look to their guy and their guy just to me personally i mean you could disagree but i just don't think he's he's i mean he's a one starter but he's not a dominant one starter and it looks to me in in the biggest of moments he is average i mean a a wednesday night you know at at los angeles in the middle of the season i free look as i've seen freed look as good as anybody but but I've watched him in these six or seven or eight big moments in his career, and he's about 50-50. And he's not a 50-50 pitcher. You know, he's a 700-750 pitcher. But in those moments, uh, now the Braves come back, and who who pitches today for the Braves? Uh, is it right? Okay. Uh, Colorado, Colorado right. against, um, and who's pitching for the Phillies? Wheeler. Okay, so that'll be a good matchup. I mean, that's two pretty good pitchers. Um, We'll find out. Um, Something tells me Strider's not well. I mean, something just worries me about that. I and mean, he's a big guy in that staff. I mean, he's a he's, he's a dominant roster. arm. I mean, he's a. I'll tell you this: um, you're big. You're a bigger Braves fan than I am. If you had to win a game tomorrow and you had a healthy Freed or a healthy Strider, who do you want on the mound? I mean, I want a healthy Strider because <laughs> yeah. he's electric. I yeah. mean, he has electric stuff. Yep. Uh, Freed just does not have. A, he's a grinder. I mean, he's a grinder and he's a good pitcher. I'm not. I'm not dismissing his contributions to the Braves. I mean, he got him there. I mean, he wins a lot of games. He's solid. He, he's um. He's stable. He does a lot of things that you need out of a pitcher. But but he just does not. There, there are not many games Freed goes to the mound and has lights out stuff. Strider goes to the mound about every other game and he has lights out stuff. Now now he may blow it and and um, but we'll see. I mean it'll be an interesting. It's kind of disappointing. The Braves played all year to get that advantage and to give up that advantage in one game. But congratulations to the Phillies. I mean they came out of the gate swinging. Um, I think they scored two runs in three of the first four innings. By that I mean two runs in the first, two in the second, two in the fourth, and that really puts the Braves behind the eight ball. Now I figured the Braves would make a run. I really did because I thought the Phillies' bullpen has some issues. And if you could get to the bullpen, you could make a game of it. Olsen hits the three-run homer to make it 7-6. <laughs> and then, I mean, it's, it's a baseball game there. Freehold, you get nervous in the ninth? <laughs> Why? Okay. Eflin <laughs> is an average to below average starter coming off of an injury where he barely played all year, never closed a game in his life uh, before the last couple weeks. And uh, we have a lights-out closer, Sir Anthony Dominguez. He's really good. But for some reason, Eflin 
they put Eflin in close. Yeah. I don't get it. Yeah. I don't understand it. But I mean, you know, the Braves now are in a must-win situation. You know, you got to win today. You can't go back to Philly. You can't go to Philly uh, having lost two games. You can, but it makes it highly unlikely. They really need to win um, today. The Phillies have put themselves in a good position. The Phillies kind of, um, to me, today is playing with house money. I mean, you, you know, you win the first game on the road against the team that won your division and beat you by 10 or 11 games. Um, that's got to give you a little bit of mojo. I mean, there's got to be a little bit of mojo here. Um, and the Braves, I mean, all the pressure today is on the Atlanta Braves. Now, here's what I expect, and Freehold may disagree. I think the Braves answer the bell because they always do. I think the Braves win today 5-2, to 6-3, to three, something like that. But um, but but the problem with Freed, it's not a big – I'm not saying Freed's not a good pitcher. Freed's a good pitcher. But but some pitchers are just better when given that moment. And Freed seems to be average when given that moment. He's above average as a pitcher, but in those particular moments. I, I, I use David Cohn. Um, I mean, Cohn could be 12 and 12, but I wanted him on that mound at a big game. John Smoltz, as good as Maddox and Glavin were in their heyday, you give me one of those three in a big game, I'll take Smoltz. I mean, I just I thought Smoltz was because those guys have electric stuff. You know what I mean? They can go out there um, with the better spin rate than average, <laughs> whether they got Vaseline on their ears or not. I'll tell you, man, the dude had shiny ears. I don't know if you saw this or he not, did. but ESPN did a big um, uh, ESPN radio. No, excuse me, ESPN television had a big, I don't know, just uh, visuals and, 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 you know, the counting of the spin. I mean, it, it was just pretty obvious. Um, either he was just locked in and had the best stuff he's ever had in his career or <laughs> there's something floating around out there that he was getting his hands on. Uh, we'll never know. I mean, those guys are so good at gaining an advantage over one team or another. Um, so that's an abbreviated sports report brought to you by Burt of a Thousand Gods. Um, real clear politics yesterday did, uh, for the first time this year, a an adjusted polling average. They, they basically used the historical biases. And they calculated Pennsylvania, they calculated Arizona, Wisconsin, um, Ohio, Georgia, and Nevada. I mean, those were the states, they did it on all the states, but those are the ones that I paid most attention to because I think the power of the Senate resides in those hotly contested, highly competitive Senate races. And here's how it worked out. Well, what they did, Ray, was take the polls today and then the historical biases of the polls over the past um four presidential excuse me two presidential and four midterm elections in other words um hillary clinton was favored to win wisconsin by 5.7 points trump won it by 0.7 percentage points uh, you know so there's a five percent historical bias there um there's a two and a half percent historical bias in nevada um and this is really since trump showed up in 16 since donald trump gets there the submerged trump vote um the attempt by some of the mainstream pollsters and media outlets to discourage Republican participation. I mean, there's there's a myriad multitude of reasons to believe there's bias in these polls. I mean, we know there are biases in the polls, um, but how much? You know, it's a guesstimate. But um, but Real Clear Politics did a real extensive analysis of the adjusted polling average, including the once again, the last two presidential races, last four midterms, and what historical biases that they've um, they've calculated to be a part of this equation. And here's exactly where we are if you include the historical biases of the poll. Oz is plus 2.2. 2. 
Pennsylvania has a big bias historically for its polling. So if you take um, the Fetterman Oz race and apply the historical average, excuse me, the historical biases, Oz is up two plus two. Now he's not, excuse me, 2.2. Now he's not up. I mean, he's still down 1.7 to 3.2 to, you know, somewhere between one and three points. One and four points is where he's down in the polling. But once again, the polling doesn't include the historical biases. When you include that, Oz is plus 2.2, Masters in Arizona, plus 1.7, Johnson in Wisconsin, plus 3.3, Vance in Ohio, plus 4.5, Laxalt in um, Nevada, plus 1.1, Walker is still down um, 0.8 percentage points. There's not as much bias in the Georgia polls historically as there has been in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania is worse than anywhere. I mean, it's off the chart. As Robert said, you know, um, if it, the first, the next elect, the next fair election we have in Philadelphia will be the first fair election that we've ever had in Philadelphia. So the historical biases really apply in uh, in Pennsylvania as a result, really and truly, the metro metropolitan area of Pennsylvania. But there's just not a lot of case study that show Georgia polling has been that off. I mean, there's just not. Um, it's it's pretty accurate, and it's um there, there's a little bit, but not much. But there's a lot in some of these other states. So if you look, funny, at, it almost seems like the, the the any bias that was in the Georgia poll would have been kind of negated by what we think may have happened in Fulton County. And does it happen again? Right. D- you know, there's never been the an Zuckerberg's election. Influence. Well, I mean, but but think about it. There's not been an election yet with these strict guidelines or guardrails right. of who and, can vote and who can't. No drop boxing, no unsolicited mail-in ballots. I mean, you can't put that in the bias because it's never happened before. Yep. I mean, when you say historical biases, I mean, that, that infers these things have happened uh, in prior elections, and this has never happened. So, yeah, I mean, there's a reason to be optimistic about Georgia because we believe they've curtailed some of the drop boxing and some of the, uh, you know, transporting of ballots. We, we don't know that. I mean, we all suspect some of that may have happened. But you look at Pennsylvania, that's a hole for the Republicans. Um you look at it, Wisconsin, that's a hole for the Republicans. Vance would be a um, hole for the Republicans. And then you've got um, the Warnock-Walker race. That would be a hole for Warnock. If the polling with the historical biases plays out, Laxalt would be a flip and Masters is a flip. So those would be the two flips. Nevada would flip to the Republican. Um, Arizona would flip to the Republican, and that would be good enough. I mean, that would be enough for the Republicans to um, have a 51, still not a Romney-proof margin, but but uh, the Republicans would be in the majority in the Senate. Um, now, now, how this plays out, I don't have any idea. I'm more optimistic about Walker in Georgia because of what we just discussed. I think they've done some things to slow Stace, Stacey Abrams and her machine down in Georgia. But once again, there is no historical reference point when it comes to that. Somebody's yeah. on the phone. And Romney-proof I mean, that is just... But you can't trust the guy. I don't even know what that says, but... Oh, man. Well, I'll tell you, you what it says. Romney proof he can. ain't one of us. I mean, Murkowski... I I, look, we need Murkowski to lose in Alaska. I mean, we need Kelly Shabaka to beat Murkowski in Alaska. She will be a dependable vote. Murkowski's never been in lockstep right. with the America First movement. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, you know, we say it a lot of times here. The Republicans aren't to be trusted. Now, that doesn't mean all Republicans. I trust Masters. I trust Vance. I trust Walker. I trust Oz. I don't trust Murkowski in Alaska. I certainly don't trust, um, you know, Romney in, in Utah. So, I, you know, having a 51-vote margin in the Senate, 
I mean, you're going to be let down every time you turn around by Susan Collins or Lisa Murkowski or Mitt Romney. Let's go to the phone, then we'll take a break. Here's Breeze. Morning. Hey, kid. Listen, all. I'm more and more convinced now that we have got we can't do anything with these Democrats. They're already that old law. They're fascists, and you can't change them. But we have got to hold local, state, federal, every politician. If you want to be a politician, we need to hold our Republicans accountable. You know, we we got to call them, and we got to force them to fight. It gets me so bad. Like you know, I have like in the state of Tennessee. When that guy got got arrested by the FBI, every Republican in this country, every Republican in that state, our state, every Republican senator, everybody in the House ought to be in front of a TV camera talking to somebody, raising hell with the FBI for them being a bunch of brown shirt, daggone um, brown shirt militia arm or whatever you want to call it, of the daggone Democrat Party. And, you know, you were talking yesterday about the um, interest rate. Well, if, you, if that guy knows it and you and I know it, at what point does the Fed keep raising interest rates and intentionally cause stagnation? I know you said we need to go ahead and hit it hard, but at what point is hard enough? Because at, at some point if they keep raising interest rates, I've got my clients now are getting scared. Okay, some of them are getting scared. Yeah, some of them lost a million dollars already you know, at the stock market, a half million, stuff like that. So at what point did they stop that? And what, then the next question is, at what point would the Fed intentionally be trying to cause ha- too much harm, in other words? So, you know, we got, to, we got to look at all of those things. But the biggest thing that gets me, though, is, is that going, the Republicans need to fight at every turn. Your Ted Cruz's, your Kennedy's, and all those guys that talk these, these games, Big master. He ought to be raising hell for the people of Tennessee. Just for no other reason to let us know he's a fighter. All of our local guys should be all raising hell about everything that goes on. Yeah, I know they they represent the state of South Carolina, but if it could happen in Tennessee, if FBI agents could go to a go to a person's house in Tennessee and arrest them with guns in front of the entire family, dress up like a bunch of daggone commandos because they sang daggone Christian hymns inside of an abortion clinic, yeah, you give them a ticket. But do you send the FBI that they can damn sure do it in Columbia, South Carolina? You better believe that. So, McMaster, our local representatives are going to wake the hell up and start fighting. I'd rather fight him in Tennessee than fight him here, in other words. But fight him everywhere you got to fight him. And also, I'll tell you another thing I find ironic. We're being threatened with nuclear weapons. Joe Biden's talking about an Armageddon. Well, who the hell sold the Russians the uranium to build the Russian damn nuclear weapons, okay? We did. All thank, right, fellas, y'all take it from Thank there. you, Breeze. Hold on. Uh, well, I mean, thank you for the call. Let's t- take a break. I don't want to get too far behind. Got another call. We'll get there as soon as we get back on the other side. Breeze mentioned the Fed, the interest rate. I- I've got kind of a theory that I've come up with. Um, it's inexact. It's mine. But I, but I really believe um, we're getting close to finding out a question that we've asked. How much inflated has the American economy become as a result of the kind of kind of modern monetary theories that we've governed ourselves under? Monetary policy has been based on modern monetary theory. How inflated has that made the, the entire U.S. economy? Take a break. 
back in a minute. I want to go back real quick to the Romney um, exception. In other words, if you have 51 in the Senate and only Mitt Romney, I mean, in other words, if Romney is the one senator that gets you to 51, you just can't trust the guy. I mean, if Murkowski, it's not just that we're trying to beat Democrats. The Republicans are simultaneously trying to purge their party of some of this old guard who just won't accept uh, the newfound energy that has dominated Republican politics since Donald Trump shows up. Uh, I just wonder if you didn't call it Trumpism. I mean, if it was, if this movement had ever gotten um, where it is without the force that is Donald Trump, that that would be so interesting to me because there, there's something about Trump that Romney just finds unacceptable. There's something about Trump, Murkowski, and Susan Collins. Um, I what what I'm arguing, Rev, is do they oppose the America First agenda or do they oppose the messenger? You know, kind kind of the reason the America First agenda is so prevalent in American politics today. Don't know the answer to that, but I know I do know this. If the Republicans have control of the Senate by 51 to 49 and Mitt Romney's included in that, you may or may not have control depending on what day it is. Murkowski is the same thing. Looks to me like Shabaka is going to beat Murkowski in in uh, Alaska. I mean, it really, really? does. Yeah, I mean, and I, so there's hope. Th- there's a lot of hope well. there. I mean, it, it seems to me that, um, once again, it's kind of a weird ranked voting system, but it seems to me that there are enough Republicans in Alaska that are fed up with Murkowski. I mean, she's going to get some crossover vote, obviously. She'll get Democrats in Alaska. There's just not a lot of Democrats in Alaska. Um, so, yeah, I'm projecting that Murkowski gets beat in Alaska. Romney's not running. This would be very interesting. The two races that will be most interesting in next election, the 24 um, cycle, is Manchin in West Virginia and Romney in Utah. Can Romney not be a real Republican and win in Utah again? And can Manchin, in a state that Trump, you know, won overwhelmingly and has a plus 39 uh, rating in West Virginia, can Manchin as a Democrat win that race again? Those are, I mean, there'll be some other interesting races, but those two will be very interesting. Romney in Utah and um, and Manchin in West Virginia. Let's go to Tucker Carlson and, uh, you know, his, um, his state mate in the Senate, uh, Mike Lee has the endorsement of 48 other, all 48 other senators are endorsing Mike Lee. Um, the guy from Utah has not. In fact, he um, is helping Evan McMullen, who is running, I think, as an independent, but he's getting a lot of Democrat donations and Democrat, um, a lot of the data basing he's doing is from the Democrat party. He's identifying Democrats in Utah to vote in the general, despite not having a viable candidate. And um, we'll see how that plays out. But here's Mike Lee explaining to Tucker Carlson the situation with Mitt Romney. Where of as well, and that is that some prominent Republicans in Washington actually don't want to win in November. It seems really important to you, maybe for the future of the country, but some of them are actively trying to lose. Mitt Romney is one of them. He is working against his fellow Utah Republican Senator Mike Lee in his re-election campaign. Seems like a big story, not getting a ton of coverage. Senator Mike Lee joins us tonight. Senator, thank you very much for coming on. So your race, which I haven't been really paying attention to, but I just I started reading about it. You are being painted as some sort of dangerous extremist, which I can say firsthand you are not. And you have your fellow Utah Republican senator working against you. Like, how did this happen? Well, he's explained that he's got two friends in this race. When he first told me that, my reaction was, who's the other friend? and that he therefore wants to remain neutral. Look, I understand it, I respect it. Here's what's going on. My opponent, Evan McMullen, is a Democrat running in disguise. 
Yes. So um, I, I understand the commitment made by my colleague, and I, I work with him, I like him, but here's the deal. I don't think Mitt Romney wants Chuck Schumer to continue to be the Senate Majority Leader. If I'm right on that, then he's get on board, because that's exactly what he will be producing. That's exactly what this will lead to. If Utah gets tricked into electing Evan McMullen, a closeted Democrat, into the United States Senate. And so as soon as Mitt Romney is ready to, I will eagerly accept his endorsement. He's got a big family, and I'd encourage all of them to go to leaveforsenate.com and make donations to my campaign, as Evan McMullen is raising millions of dollars off of Act Blue, the Democratic donor database, uh, based on this idea that he's going to defeat me and help perpetuate the Democratic majority. So you, maybe you don't want to say this, maybe you're not even aware of it, but I, I believe it is true that members of Mitt Romney's immediate families, nuclear family, are actively helping McMullen against you. So is it possible to just call Mitt Romney, whom I, I know you've known probably your whole life, and say, please, like there's a lot at stake here. Well, I've asked him, I, I, I'm asking him right here again tonight, right now. Mitt, if you'd like to protect the Republican majority, give us any chance of seizing the Republican majority once again, getting it away from the Democrats who were facilitating this massive spending spree and a massive inflationary binge. Please get on board. Help me win re-election. Help us do that. You can get your entire family to donate to me through leaforsenate.com. I'd invite all of your viewers to do the same because this is a race that's getting closer and closer because Evan McMullen continues to raise millions of dollars from progressive Democratic donors nationwide who are hell-bent on getting rid of me and replacing him with Evan McMullen. I don't think, do you think the voters of Utah understand how fervently Evan McMullen's donors hate the values of the state of Utah? I mean, for real, not about tax rates, but the way people live. They're religious people with families. Like, they don't, they hate that. Do you think your voters get that? No, I don't. Because, the, look, the, the local media in Utah is complicit in this. They want Evan McMullen to win. For that very reason, they're refusing to ask him policy questions. They allow him simply to engage in ad hominem attacks on me, notwithstanding the fact that the guy claims to be campaigning on this uh, uh, platform of civility, which is laughable. But they never make him answer any actual policy questions. And so, yeah, I think a lot of Utahns are being duped and fooled. And it doesn't help to have the tacit acquiescence, the tacit assistance of my Republican colleague for Utah. It's noteworthy here that 48, all 48 of my other Republican colleagues are on board with me, have supported me, have supported my campaign, and have endorsed me. It's not too late, Mitt. You can join the party. I, I'd welcome you to do so, because otherwise you'll be stuck with two more years of Chuck Schumer being the leader and two more years of Joe Biden having unfettered rule over the United States Senate without any Republican backstop. I mean, this is a guy, Pierre Delecto, who marched with Black Lives Matter, which hates the nuclear family and endorsed riots. Like, I, I think he's gone insane. I, I, my view, not yours. Uh, but Senator Mike Lee, I appreciate your coming on tonight. It's an amazing story that we were not aware of. Thank you. Thank you. Subscribe to the Fox News YouTube. It is kind of an interesting story that, Romney, I mean, we're not talking a lot about this. I mean, we're talking a lot about Ohio and Pennsylvania. Wisconsin, some of the other, um, you know, swing states. Utah is not a swing state, but Mike Lee is in a political fight with uh, Evan McMullen, who was a presidential candidate. Remember some yep. of the never Trumpers and Lincoln Project guys and whatnot. Some of the um, the pedophilia involved in the Lincoln Project um, wanted Evan McMullen to kind of, you know, take enough votes away from Donald Trump 
to make sure Trump could not win. Um, I think he was on the ballot in some of the primary states or some of the primary ballots in, in several states. But I think, I think it's odd that every other senator in the U.S. Senate has endorsed and supported Mike Lee except Mitt Romney. And I, that's just who Romney is. I mean, Romney is a bitter man. He felt it was his birthright to be president of the United States. Um, and somebody, you know, he blew the election, lost to Obama in a bad economy. Trump talks a lot about that. You know, the reason I'm running, we can't trust these other Republicans to man up and do the job that needs to be done in these dire moments. And um, Romney blows it. Trump wins the election. And Romney just sucks. You know, forever. I, I don't think Romney will run again. I, I really don't. I mean, I don't. You know, Romney did ask and receive Trump's endorsement when he ran in 2018. Well, right? he desperately wanted to be Secretary of State. Remember, he went to Trump Tower and met with Trump. Right. You know, he, he, he loved Trump as long as he thought there was something for him to gain. I mean, th- that's who Mitt Romney is. I mean, I don't, I'm not disputing whether Mitt Romney's a good man or not, a moral man or not. I'm pat- not passing judgment. He's a political punk. I mean, he is an absolute political punk. And he's always been a political punk, as far as I'm concerned. Once again, I'm not judging whether he's a moral and decent man. I'm talking about his political antics. And when one thing doesn't break his way, he tries to bring or burn the entire house down, you know, because he didn't get his way. To me, making up a word here, you ready? That's pretty punkish, as far as I'm concerned. Let's go to the phone. Here is Williams in, in Orangeburg, listening to WTQS. Hello, Williams. Hey, how you doing? Um, good morning, um... I want to ask you, man, there's two two political parties, one fight for democracy and one try to destroy it. The one that tried to destroy it was the one in January 6th. I Google, I Google this morning, how many people dying Vietnam for democracy? It was 80,000 people in Vietnam died for democracy. And we got some a-holes trying to destroy democracy. And one more thing. Um, DeSantis, he should get 20 buses and go down to the border and get some of the 20 buses of people to fill it up when they come back and clean up Florida. See, God, when you treat people like you do, God, come back at you hard. Thank you. Thank you, Williams. Appreciate it, my man. Um... Yeah, but I do believe there's one party that represents or embodies democracy, and that's the party with an R beside his name, despite all of its imperfections and and, and issues. And, and you know, I'm not the biggest fan of the world of the Republican Party. Uh, I'm a big fan of the battle that is going on within the Republican Party. There's nothing I'd like better than to see a Blake Masters in the Senate, to see a J.D. Vance in the Senate, to see a Herschel Walker in the Senate, because I I think they believe in the virtue and values of America. Um, there's not much to convince me, excuse me, there's not much evidence to convince me that the Democrats are the party of democracy. It's a totalitarian um, regime. It's something that, um, that to me is losing independent voters because of its stances. Uh, when you look at the Hispanic vote, I mean, even the African-American vote to some degree, not Williams, but some of the other African-American vote that is basically, um, Biden has a lower approval rating with African-Americans than any Democrat president in American history. Um, the America First movement has more support of Hispanic voters than any Republican movement in American history. Why is that? Because I think everybody likes being free. Everybody likes calling their own shot. 
Everybody likes living life in a normal way, um, normally associated with the world of politics. So when I look at Hispanics and African-Americans and whites and women and men and, uh, you know, Southerners and Northerners, I think there's something inside of all of us that wants to be free, that wants to pursue our own, uh, chart our own course, pursue our own future. And I think the Democrats are not that party. They simply don't embody that sort of political policy or, you know, the policy making and, and, and some of the, um, I, the, the governmental overreach of the Democrats is, is very troublesome to me. So, Williams, I'll agree with you that there is one political party in America today that seems to be struggling to get to a better place and, and embody democracy and, and freedoms and liberties and, and personal responsibility. Um, for a long time, I don't think either party embodied that. I think the Republicans have lost their way. But I think the Republicans losing their way pales in comparison to the Democrats going back crap crazy. Because when do you make as part of your priority transgenderism, you know, and some of the other, I don't know, gender gender mutilation. And I mean, that, that seems to be, you know, something the Democrats are very interested in. You know, should an eight-year-old be allowed to enter into a medical contract and um, and have a sex change surgery? Should we change the pronouns of he and she and and him and her? I mean, that that's where the Democrats focus a lot of their energy. And I just don't think the independent-minded voter in America today are buying much of that. You got liberals. I mean, you got five-star liberals who believe in anything the Democrats say. I mean, there's 33% of the country that believe uh, Joe Biden's doing a good job. How can you believe that unless there's a blind loyalty you have to anybody with a D beside their name? Joe Biden sucks at the job. It's pretty easy to see how bad he is at the job, but he has a D beside his name. And for about 33% of Americans, that's good enough. Williams may or may not be one of those. Take a break. Back in just a minute. I don't have time to do it now. we got about three or four minutes hard break. Top of the hour will disrupt this train of thought. But in the next hour, I want to go through this. Um, we're going to identify the next. The, the balance of this decade is going to be referred to as the correction era. You know, we talk about the lost decade and the inflation decade. We've had an everything bubble. And we've had debates on this show for really and truly three or four or five years about what happens when, you know, the roosters come home to roost, so to speak, and the Fed um, gains its senses or regains its senses and finds out what um, zero percent interest rates and quantitative easing does to the realities of an economy. And it seems to me, I mean, I heard Jamie Dimon yesterday or the day before, 20% seems to me, because we've argued how inflated is the economy? How inflated is Wall Street? You know, how overvalued, I mean, that's Reggie's word, how overvalued is the market? I don't think anybody's known. I don't think we know yet. But I'm hearing a lot of numbers. And the number I hear is somewhere between 20 and 40. Not just the market, but the economy in general. Um, 29% fewer uh, mortgage applications. 20% of the real estate agents in America, 1.2 million real estate agents in America, 20% will not be selling real estate by this time next year because of the downturn in housing. I mean, all this is speculation and conjecture. I don't know. You don't know. But it seems to me that every number I see about the economy is somewhere between 20 and 40%. That's a big number. I mean, if we're down 20% and Diamond says there's another 20% to go, let me think real quick. Uh, 20 and 20, that's 40. You know, that's, that's significant. Now, is that the bottom? I don't know. Don't have any idea. But it seems to me that some of the um, some of the informed voices are beginning to accept that this um, and they're saying it not this way. I mean, I'm the guy saying it this way, 
that we've allowed quantitative easing and zero percentage rates to be normalized to the point of the economy is what the economy is. And I've always said, guys, the economy's not this. I mean, this is not reality. This is la-la land. When the, when the Fed gets that active in, uh, in involving itself in the, in the marketplace, you're going to have a bubble. What kind of bubble? An everything bubble. We've got a debt bubble. We've got an asset bubble. Well, I think we got a bubble in the market. We got a bubble in finance. I mean, I just think we have a bubble everywhere. I did see where um, the Fed worked with some of the central bankers around the world and injected emergency liquidity in the um, Switzerland economy. Why? Credit Suisse. Remember, we had this. We had Mohammed L R E N um, yesterday. We had him for about four minutes. Uh, not here in the studio, obviously, but he's a big shot. But um, he's one of the Allianz uh, risk management experts and speculators and whatnot. One of their chief strategists. It was a CNBC interview. I think. And and he's the guy that said, you know, we've got some pain. I mean, there's some pain headed our way. Here's the question. Um, would we rather rip the Band-Aid off and deal with it? Or would we rather, you know, pick at it a little bit here and pick at it? a little bit there. Um, futures are up a little bit today because they believe some of the metrics that the Fed depends on to make its decisions are going to lead them down the road of um, not pressing the brake quite as hard as they are. I mean, I think there's a 75 basis point hike coming. I think that's cooked in the um, or baked into the cake, so to speak. What comes after that? Don't have any idea. Do we get to 5% Fed fund rate? Don't have any idea. But it seems to me the number that I'm hearing a lot of is 20 to 40%, 29% of this, 31% of that, 27% of this. And it's from folks who know a lot more than I do. Jamie Diamond, Mohammed L R E N. Now these guys have motivations, but they're not there to tell you the truth. Jamie Diamond does what? He looks after JP Morgan. So some of his narrative and commentary is going to be with JP Morgan in mind. Uh, L R E N is similar to that. I mean, they, they, these guys are in the business and they've got to make sure the business remains profitable. Take a break. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. So I want to make sure I'm following you on this twenty to forty percent thing. So okay. you, you you were saying that the, the numbers you're seeing related to the economy is that the economy may have been overblown twenty to forty percent. Well, I think you agree with that. I mean, you, you would agree that quantitative easing and zero percent interest rates are going to uh, inflate an economy. It's, I, it's, yeah, going to, it's, it's going to juice up an economy to some. I mean, you're going to have more asset appreciation, more economic activity than you probably should have because of those monetary policies. Okay, so 20, 40, 20 to forty percent, and you've you've kind of identified that things have have been hit and they're down by about twenty percent. So so we're good now. So we're. I mean, I think there's another leg. I mean, I think oh. there's another twenty percent to go. I mean, once oh. again, Rev. I mean, I don't know this. I don't know any of this. I I just read. I probably read thirty or forty articles a day. I mean, I don't read them all. The some are more interesting, and some I thought were something, and they're not. And I, I pass over those and go to to something else. But when I read um, about mortgage applications, real estate ages, stock market valuations, um, I mean, they're varying opinions, but they all seem to believe. That we they don't say, hey man, because of our monetary policy and Fed activism, we've inflated the economy by twenty to forty percent. But they're indirectly saying that. If they're saying we got one point two million real estate agents and you're gonna have twenty percent leave that sector of the economy in the next twenty four months, and if you say, you know, houses are overpriced by about twenty or twenty five or thirty percent, 
if um, the stock market is over is overvalued by 20 or 25 percent. I mean, they're basically saying that they're saying because of our monetary policy, because of Fed activism, we've inflated the economy to an unrealistic place. I mean, I've always felt that. I mean, there, there's nobody out there with a sound understanding of the economy that can say, hey, uh, I'll give you an example. I like to compare everything to football. Remember when Nebraska was as good a football program as there was in America? Uh, sure. A lot of people believe that something happened in Nebraska. You know, the young kid doesn't want to go out to farm country. He wants to go to, you know, South Beach, or he wants to go to, um, you know, uh, why does he want to go to Tuscaloosa? What's the difference in Tuscaloosa and Lincoln, Nebraska? The, the point I've always believed is, is Nebraska had a real good steroid program. I mean, they did it better than anybody else. We weren't as vigilant. And then you kind of kind of get steroids out of the game, um, human growth hormones, performance enhancing drugs. And all of a sudden, college football kind of laid the gauntlet. I mean, they, they, they dropped the, the hammer. They said, we're not going to tolerate kids taking steroids any longer. What happened in Nebraska? I mean, once again, a lot of people say, well, I mean, it's, it's a program of days gone by. People, kids don't want to go to Lincoln, Nebraska anymore, but they want to go to Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Really? They want to go to Norman, Oklahoma? Really? No, I think Nebraska ran an unbelievable um, performance-enhancing <laughs> drug program. You said they had a good steroid well, program. They, they had a great steroid program. <laughs> you know, when, when you wow. put, well, I mean, just think about it. So, so, um, so when Nebraska had to face reality, what are they now? Run-of-the-mill football program, right? I mean, they, they were a dominant football program in the day. They're not any longer. Well, Ken, they lost Tom Osborne. Okay, they've tried a lot of different coaches. Sooner or later, one could coach and get it right, unless something they were they had to their advantage they don't have any longer. So the economy had zero percent interest rates. It had a um, a quantitative easing of you know fifty billion a month, eighty billion a month. Liquidity pumped in into the economy, and and when you when you distort supply and demand and some of the market realities or economic realities that way, you're going to end up with Nebraska on steroids. And that's where we are. And we've got to get ourselves off of, for lack of a better explanation, the, the financial steroids that we've allowed the economy to be propped up upon. And that's going to be hard. Is it, a, is it another 20% shoe to drop? Is it 30%? I don't know. I don't have any idea. But, but the numbers I'm hearing from people who know this world a lot better than I, now, once again, they don't say, hey, the economy was overcooked by 20 to 40%, so we got to straighten it out. But when these other numbers in different and varying ways are mentioned, it leads me to believe that at the end of the day, this economy has been overcooked by somewhere between 20 and 40 percent. And the Fed says we can't do this forever. I mean, we even have limited resources and we only got so many tools. We got more tools in our toolbox than anybody, but we don't have them all. And I think the Fed is coming to the realization we've got to get this economy back in some sustainable model. And that model will probably mean 7% interest rates on a 30-year mortgage. It probably means 4 or 5% return on a CD or a, a, you know, a bond or whatever. And then I'm not saying it's good or bad, but there's going to be a, um, a correction that we're all going to have to endure. Let's go to the phone. Charles and Lamar. Good morning, Charles. Good morning, Ken. Uh, just want to say that you have an unbelievable amount of patience um, and you don't ever have to tell anybody anymore that y'all don't screen your calls. I think everybody knows <laughs> that. Um, I'm going to make a prediction that uh, it come January, the house is going to be 245 to 190 or thereabout. And the Senate's going to be about 53 to 47 in our favor or thereabout. And I'm going to tell you why I believe that. 
I do a lot of talking with people. I do a lot of reading. I do a lot of listening. Um, a lot of people are thinking a whole lot like I'm thinking. I've voted in every election since 1974. For the first time next week, when I go and do my early voting, I am going to vote a straight party ticket for the first time in my life. And I think there are a whole lot of us out there uh, in, that are going to do the same thing. So we'll just have to wait and see. You were talking about polls uh, this morning and, and uh, weighted polls and how you know, inaccurate they've been in the past. Um, we'll see what happens, but I'm going to make that prediction. 295 uh, to about um, – You said 245. 290, 245, yeah. to about 190 and 53 to 47. Okay. I'm not all far, Charles. Thank you for the call. Appreciate it. I'm at about two. I mean, best case scenario, I've got 240 and 52. I mean, that, I wrote those numbers down a few weeks back, 240 and 52. If you look at the um, the races that get you there, I mean, the Walker race gets you to 53. If Laxalt flips in Nevada and Masters flips in Arizona, um, and if Walker can flip in Georgia, that gets you to 53. And that's not out of the realm of possibility. That wouldn't be a um, a crazy scenario. It would be an optimistic scenario. It would be a good day for the Republicans. But um, but I think most people have the Republicans. I'm, I'm talking about the experts for what it's worth. I mean, the experts have the Republicans north of 230 in the House. And um, here's kind of an interesting take. This is very interesting from 538. Give you a weird analysis. The, um, the 538 website has the Republicans, excuse me, the Democrats holding the Senate with a 68% chance. In other words, it's 68-32. Um, but the the Democrats only have about a 7 or 8 or 9% chance to have 51 seats. The Republicans have a much better chance of getting 51 or 2 or 3 seats than the Democrats. But the most, um, when they run these through the, the, the algorithms, 50-50 comes out more than any. And in a 50-50 divided Senate, the Republicans don't have the advantage because of Kamala Harris. So when you look at the modeling and some of the um, analysis, and it says, um, you know, the, the Republicans only have a one in three chance of taking control of the Senate, there, there are no scenarios that I've seen that have the Republicans having fewer senators this election cycle than they do right now. In other words, we're not going to wake up um, November the 9th and the, and the Republicans have 49 senators. Um, worst case scenario is 50. The only upside is to the Republicans. I mean, there is no upside to the Democrats. Think about this, guys, because in 24, the Democrats played defense in 23 states. The Republicans only play defense in 10. So if the Republicans can get to 51 or 2 or 3, I say 52, Charles says 53, um, who knows? Then they have a much better chance of adding to that advantage in 2024. Um, I mean, Trump's the wild card. I mean, if Trump's out there on the ticket, um, you know, he drives a lot of energy his way and he drives a lot of energy the other way. Um, I did see some encouraging polling news, if you're a Republican, yesterday in that abortion is waning. I mean, Robert said it a couple of days back, abortion had its day, student debt had its day. This election is about inflation, the economy, and crime. And really and true to the majority of voters, lump uh, inflation and the economy kind of all in the same and the Biden administration is doing all it can to try and encourage the Fed to be complicit 
and creating some economic momentum in the next three or four weeks. But I think that die is cast. I mean, I think that horse has left the station, that train has left the barn, and ain't no changing when it comes to, um, you know, what, what, what economic conditions are people going to go to the poll? Um, and it's still bizarre to me, Rev. I, I get the Democrat. I get the diehard Democrat. I mean, Charles just said I'm voting for every Republican. I said on Monday, I've never done this, but everybody I bump into, I encourage vote straight Republican. But I don't normally do that. Do it this time. Vote straight Republican. A lot of folks come up to me and say, hey, man, what did this thing look like? Vote Republican. Vote Republican. Go, when you cast a ballot, um, do what the Democrats have historically done. Vote that straight party ticket. Um, that's just the way we can ensure from the top to the bottom. And I'm talking about local races and some state races. Uh, we need more Republicans right now than we do Democrats. And I've never been that guy, but the Democrats have never made uh, as part of priority in, in campaign, you know, transgenderism or gender mutilation or, you know, whatever. I mean, it's just, it's a bizarre political party right now. And I think there's a reason Hispanics are, are, are you know, falling out of favor or the Democrats are falling out of favor with Hispanics and African-Americans and it's some of these um, cultural social issues that most people find to be weird. Um, you know, people will try to understand the complexities of American politics. They do. I mean, a lot of people say, man, I understand it's complicated. I get it. I mean, I understand, you know, we're a big old country. We're diverse. We've got a lot of different opinions, a lot of different ethnicities and religions and races and, and beliefs. But, but I can't make heads or tails of this transgender agenda i can't make heads or tails of this you know this agenda that will allow an 18 year old excuse me an eight-year-old to go get some surgery to have their sex <laughs> altered i mean i can't get there i don't care if you're hispanic black you know white dumb smart tall short and you know, a skinny fat i don't care i mean to me the majority of us have sense enough to say that's weird i mean that that's just real weird that one of our political parties would make as a priority some of these cultural social issues in celebration of, or really in defiance of God. I mean, I, I, you know, when Bree says a godless party and some other callers say a godless party, I think the gender mutilation, the transgenderism, some of the aspects of gay marriage and abortion are to prove to that party, you know, we don't answer to God. We're, we're not held accountable to God. I'm not saying they don't believe in God. I, I don't know who believes in God and who doesn't. I mean, I'm not here to judge what you believe and where your eternity will be spent. I mean, that's something you've got to say grace over in the best way you know how, as I do. But, but I think when you look at a political party that celebrates some of the oddities that the Democrats are celebrating or encouraging us to understand, you know, um, to be, to be um, uh, patient with. I mean, I have no patience at all with transgenderism. I have no patience at all with a woman um, getting out swam by a man who now identifies as a woman. Stop telling me I need to have more patience about that. I'll have patience on marginal tax rates. I'll have patience on infrastructure spending. I'll have patience on education and how we can make it better. But I have zero patience with a party who believes that a man who now identifies as a woman has a right to compete in athletic events and, and just, you know, beat their brains out under, under those terms. I mean, I'm not going to have any patience with a political party who celebrates an eight-year-old being allowed to go get or enter into a medical contract to have their sex changed. I mean, I don't know anybody Hispanic, black, white, that, that, that you know, under with a, with a sane mind finds that not to be weird. I'm not saying you got to be offended by it or got to be, you know, turned off by it, but, but you got to admit that it's very odd. It's very weird that a political party would make as a priority 
some of those concepts. Let's go to the phone. Joe in Hartsville. Morning, Joe. Morning, guys. Uh, I'm living proof y'all don't scream phone call. Because <laughs> I hear the uh, inflection when you say, oh, okay. But I think the American people are tired of being lied to. I mean, these people stand up and flat out lie to you. Remember a couple of weeks ago, months ago or so, Biden stood up in front of the American people and said, the railroad strike has been averted. We worked 20 hours and we got an agreement. Well, that was a lie. They're not even going to vote on that thing until after the election. And you got two unions that said, you know, up yours. So if, it's all a lie. And they talking about this morning on the news, they're going to punish Saudi Arabia. Now think about that. He goes to Saudi Arabia. He's trying to deal with Iran, give them billions of dollars, and let them get a nuclear weapon who is the mortal enemy of Saudi Arabia. And Iran is providing weapons and drones to Russia that we're putting money into Ukraine, but yet we're going to give money to Iran. And people are looking at this going, you people are nuts. So I'm, I'm still sticking with my thing of over 50 seats in the, in the house and at least three or four in the Senate. So, We'll see what happens, but I, I think the American people are starting to wake up. But, yeah, I, I know for a fact y'all don't screen calls, but you let me ramble sometimes. And I know I shouldn't. Y'all have a good day. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate it. It's a call-in show. I mean, it's a, um, it's a back and forth. It's a give and take. It's a conversation we have with a group of listeners. And all opinions are welcome. And all opinions are welcomed. And, um, and we're going to continue that. We, you know, to me, and I like to say this, it is the, um, the last bastion of independent thought. I mean, this is the only place I know as a media outlet or a, a, a you know, a, a, a informational medium that you can discuss issues that people disagree about. CNN does not have much of that. I told you the Sunday morning shows historically have allowed, you know, a point counterpoint, a view and a counter view, you know, your opinion, my opinion. We argue about it for 10 or 15 minutes and the American public decide who made the most sense. Not anymore. Uh, some of the power panels, some of the uh, all-star uh, blue ribbon panel committees are now um, a reporter from the New York Times and a reporter from the Washington Post and a host of an NPR show and um, and the White House reporter from ABC News. That's a monolith. I mean, that's you're not knowing to get vigorous debate and and sincere political discourse out of those people. I mean, the the person from the Times and Post and NPR and uh, ABC News, they're going to all pretty much see the world the exact same way. Let's take a break. We'll be back. In just a few moments. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. Let's go to the phone. A couple of callers are there. Here's Paul in the PD. Good morning, Paul. Hey, good morning, y'all. Uh, I kind of wanted to talk about the governor's race in South Carolina. So, just the background. I'm middle mid twenties. Um, I voted Republican all my life, but I saw an ad the other day for Joe Cunningham, and kind of the main topics he was talking about really sparked my interest and. I guess uh, I'd never really felt like I would vote for a Democrat before, but um, main highlights was, you know, legalized sports betting in South Carolina. I grew up uh, uh, on a horse farm, and that kind of ran the Camden area, Aiken area big time. Um, he recognized that we were 50th in the state of infrastructure, 
48th on education. I have a young child. That's a big importance to me. Um, so he wanted to fix our roads. Um, and also he wanted to try to get rid of career politicians. So while I'm not saying that um, I'm going to vote for him, it's just very interesting because, um, you know, we've had a government master in there a long time. He's done everything he needed, needs to do, but I don't really see why we wouldn't shake things up a bit. So um, I kind of wanted to open that up for discussion because it is something interesting to talk about. Thanks. Thank you. Appreciate that, Paul. That's an interesting call and an interesting take. It's, uh kind of uh, reaffirms some of my suspicion about uh, Paul, I don't know if you listened last week, but um, I actually touched on that ad that Joe ran, um, and I thought it would resonate with a younger group of voters who aren't that committed uh, to, to the Republican Party. They aren't the old guard, that these folks are waiting for somebody to effectively and efficiently govern this country. In other words, they're not crazy about Democrats. They're not crazy about Republicans. They want to find some issues that they believe would make South Carolina a better place. Now, um, Joe's talking about legalizing marijuana. I mean, that's popular. I'm concerned about it, but it's still popular at the poll. Um, Joe's talking about legalizing gambling. Um, he's talking about sports betting and whatnot. He's talking about term limits and age limits. I mean, the, the, the ad sounded like the, the state income tax. Yeah, the state, abolishing the state income tax. I mean, the, and he talked about Henry's been in politics longer than I've been alive. I mean, I just knew that ad was going to resonate with the universe of people. Now, now here's the problem. That universe of person normally doesn't vote. They like the ad that they find that a little bit, um, that they find that contrast more favorable to their mindset of the way they like things to see. Here's the problem Henry has. Now, Henry's going to win because it's such a macro election. I mean, Henry's a Republican. The, the, the Republicans are, you know, uh, they're above water by 19 on the economy, 16 on inflation, um, 22 on crime. So voters who go to the poll, not very informed, somewhat informed, are going to vote largely on the macro. I mean, it's, you know, you got single issue voters. You got voters about betting. You got voters about gambling. You got voters about, excuse me, about um, about abortion. You got voters about whatever. I mean, there, there are some niche voters out there who make as a priority something that the general public does not. But the majority of this election is going to be about crime, inflation, and the economy. And the, the average voter, the Seinfeld-watching voter, believes that the Republicans are to be trusted on those three issues. But I think Joe made is making an interesting case. Um, I said it. I'll say it again. Despite the macro, I believe that the, the governor's race in South Carolina will be closer than the other constitutional officers outside of maybe um, Ellen Weaver's race as superintendent of education because the education cartel will align um, the um, the industry that is education is going to vote overwhelmingly and motivate others to vote overwhelmingly in favor of the um, the, the model that has failed the children but enriched um, some of the leadership. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's a very provocative and interesting ad, and I think it's the best hand he can play as a Democrat, you know, statewide candidate running for office in South Carolina to talk about the things that even Republicans and independent-minded voters uh, are talking about um, but, but you notice Joe didn't say anything about crime, nothing about inflation, nothing, nothing about the economy. Why? Because he's associated with Joe Biden. Robert said it Monday, every vote for a Republican is going to be a vote against the Biden agenda, whether it's a, a county council seat in, um, in Florence, a city council seat in Sumter, 
um, a mayor's race in Orangeburg, that trickles down. We talk about tri- trickle-down economics. That's trickle-down politics, um, and that's the macro. So, so whether you're going to vote for a gubernatorial candidate who likes you know, to legalize gambling or, or marijuana, um, you're still voting in, in some way, shape, or form in favor of a political party. It's still a duopoly. It's still a binary, a binary choice. And um, and I just think Henry has so much advantage in the macro by every Democrat being loosely or closely associated with the failures of the Biden administration. It's so interesting to me how few liberal pundits and Democrat activists defend the Biden administration. I mean, it really is. It's uh, it's about Trump. I tell you, I watched Meet the Press Sunday morning at the beach, and um, it was bizarre to me that they played a clip of Donald Trump from 1999 about abortion. I mean, you know, you're, you're really scouring uh, the countryside trying to find a story that you believe, and oh, that's about Georgia. I mean, that's hypocrisy. You know, try, trying to tie Trump to Walker, and they're both hypocritical. You can't believe anything they say. Um, and you kind of reinforce that Walker hypocrisy with what Trump said. Now, forget Biden on Meet the Press said, you know, that we settled gay marriage and a marriage between a man and a woman. Now, that doesn't matter because, once again, that doesn't fit the narrative. I mean, there's a there's a narrative already. You can kind of back into the game. You know, the um, the narratives that got to be established before we can have the election, and the election is the Democrats are not going to do as bad as people think they are because the Republicans are worse. I mean, that's kind of the, the, the predetermined narrative. Now, I don't think that plays itself out. Um, I'm not quite as optimistic as Charles is. Charles is a student of politics. He pays close attention. Uh, he's got it at 240 and 52. I've got it at 235 and 51, and the 51 concerns me because Romney's one of the 51. Now, Murkowski may not be one of the 51, and that's a good day for the America First movement. If Kelly Shabaka, you know, uh, wins in Alaska, that's one more America Firster, you know, as a member of the U.S. Senate, which is a big deal. That's a six-year term, so there's some um, some time to build upon that. But um, but yeah, if we got a 51 advantage. And and the fifty first is Mitt Romney. I mean, imagine the ego of Mitt Romney kind of um crossing paths with um with the reality of how important he could be in that Senate. That's why I want a Romney proof majority. I mean, Romney's turned into a sad man. I mean, he really and truly has. And there was a day that I felt Mitt Romney would have been a good president. I uh, I thought he was a manager, and I thought the country needed a managerial skill set. Um, but Romney's proven to be what a lot of people thought he was, and that's a fraud and somebody in it for himself. I mean, that's what most Republicans believed about Romney. The hesitation to make Romney the nominee behind the scenes was most grassroots Republicans believed that he was simply a fraud. I mean, he didn't mean a word he said. He, he was out for, well, I mean, you won't imagine that, a politician saying things they don't really mean nor believe in. But uh, but when, when, when Donald Trump won what Mitt Romney thought he deserved, he turned sour. Until Trump reached out to him, you know, and maybe or maybe not offered him the Secretary of State job, and I think Trump endorsed him in his uh, Senate race in Utah. Um, Romney, to me, is just kind of a shallow case of an old-school politician. You know, you, you think you're kind of entitled to this. I mean, if these dumb, ignorant country bumpkins will only listen to me and the, you know, the advice I have, we'd all be in a better place. And I think Mike Lee explained it. I, mean, I think Mike Lee was respectful of Romney. How I many never said a negative thing about Romney, but there are 50 senators. There are 49 senators in the U.S. Senate Republicans not named Mike Lee. 48 of those 49 are publicly endorsing and supporting Mike Lee 
in um, in Utah. The only one who's not is Mitt Romney. And I think Romney sees Lee as somebody who could potentially upstage him in Utah. And, you know, Romney doesn't like to be upstaged any at all. Let's go to the phone. Mike in Darlington. Morning, Mike. Hey, I, I tell you, it's just refreshing, uh, Ken, uh, to hear you every morning and uh, know that there's a little bit of uh, civility and common sense. Well, I, I guess you're the premier pontificator of common sense from the Institute of Pamplico. But I, uh, every morning, it's, it's just refreshing to hear it. And I wonder why other people can't develop that, but they just don't. And this this craziness that we're going through, I mean, nobody, I mean, no one in their right, right mind thinks that uh, Cunningham is going to be uh, efficient or honest. Or I, I think he will actually uh, increase corruption, actually, is, if his history is anything. And remember, I told you at the very beginning before Biden was even elected, he was going to be the thief in chief. And he's stolen so many things from us that he didn't even take it. What he he destroyed, he, he's worked to destroy our country, our culture, our position in the world that people have paid dearly to establish and just thrown it away. And uh, I I think uh, someone like uh, Cunningham is awful. Uh, McMaster, uh, he's a fixture, and we should probably start training somebody else for sure. But uh, goodness gracious, how in the world could you... A prankster takes an air horn in and and uh, honks it in the middle of a... Uh, of a of a gathering, I mean that's just uh, Cunningham is a is a nut in my opinion. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate. It. But he's hit a nerve. I mean, it once again. I mean, I, I've heard a lot of people say that. I mean, I've heard people say, "Hey, man, have you seen that Joe Cunningham ad? It got my attention." These are people who historically, I mean, they're not died of the wool Republicans. I mean, they're they're not the guy that goes to the Monday meeting and helps Ray Kingsbury and uh and Mike Page on Saturday afternoon canvas neighborhoods. I mean, they're they're politically in tune and they know what's going on, and they have an opinion about marijuana. They have an opinion about abortion. They have an opinion about a lot of political issues, and they kind of, Cunningham, to me, put a lot of checks in boxes when he ran that ad. Once again, the macro is too disadvantageous for that race to be competitive. But but where it normally is 55-45, I'll be interested if it turns into 53-47 sort of race because Cunningham's ads seem to appeal to independent-minded voters who are just tired of 75-year-old politicians. I mean, that's Henry's biggest negative. I mean, Henry, whether, whether we, I mean, I'm a Republican. I, I consider myself a friend of Henry. But, um, but Henry's been in it a long time. And right now, the sentiment of the average voter doesn't like people who's been in it a long time. And by the way, I, I mean, like the idea of taking a look at the state income tax. Sure, but, but I'll tell you this. I mean, under no circumstance would I vote against Henry McMaster. I mean, no, I, want to, I want to be, I mean, <laughs> there, there is no circumstance in this world that I would give the nod to Joe Cunningham. The, the point I'm trying to make is that there, there's, some, there's an argument to be made that Cunningham's ad is a bit intriguing because he's talking about issues that are important to Republicans. I mean, he's talking about the state income tax. He's talking about legalizing, I mean, libertarians. You know, we talked a lot about libertarians last week. What do libertarians believe in? Live and let live. You do you smoke your weed and I won't. You gamble on football and I won't. I mean that that's kind of so it, it kind of resonates with a a universe of voters who Cunningham has to make inroads with. 
But there, there aren't enough Democrats in South Carolina to win a statewide race. I know that firsthand. When I won the Republican primary in 2010, I knew that I was going to be lieutenant governor. I mean, there was a 95% chance that I was going to be lieutenant governor, as flawed a candidate as I was, as bad a candidate as I was. Once I won the primary, I knew I was going to win the general. I mean, it was a formality to some degree. We'd like to make you believe it could be hotly contested, but under no circumstances can a Democrat win statewide in South Carolina right now. The, 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 the only scenario that that could happen is the education cartel spending a lot of money convincing independents that Republicans are scary on public education. I mean, that's kind of the hand they play there. But, um, but Henry's going to win, and I want Henry to win. But there is a little bit of me that says, man, we need younger people. We need people who have not been in there as long as Henry has. Um, and I think Joe Cunningham is playing the bet. He's playing his hand the best he can. And whoever is giving Joe advice on that ad and, and those points, I think gave him good and sound advice. Let's go to the phone. Larry in the PD. Morning, Larry. Good morning. I was just going to congratulate the Joe Cunningham uh, campaign on placing that well-timed ad because I don't believe that that guy is not affiliated with Joe Cunningham. Uh, I think he just made a good phone call and then called his buddy and said, hey, boss, I did it. But we can pretend that whatever, I guess, we'll, we'll assume. We, we think that happens from time to time here, Larry. We really, <laughs> we've discussed that yeah, behind well, the scenes. <laughs> it, it's the risky run. It's the risky run. But, you know, here's the thing. With, with, with ideas like gambling and with ideas like legalization of marijuana, this is where I look at it. The libertarians want to say, well, they're only hurting themselves. So why do we want to get involved if somebody wants to gamble their life savings away, if somebody wants to smoke their life away? And that all sounds really good until I say, yeah, but what, what about when it's 5,000 people and they all live in your town? Then who's hurt? And the thing that I always say is with these cultural issues is whose life is being ruined right now because they can't gamble on sports in South Carolina? Whose life is in a shambles? Who can't feed their kids? Who can't make it to church on time because they can't gamble on sports? Whose life is being ruined because they can't smoke weed today? Whose life is literally going to be blown apart because they can't smoke weed? Nobody. But now, take the other side of those two issues. Why would you ever vote for that? I don't care about state revenue. I don't care about taxes being lower if it's going to destroy people. And I don't mean a lot of people. I don't think I should vote for something that's going to just absolutely destroy, even if it were a dozen people. Why would I vote for that? You, you, can't, you can't let these issues blind you to, oh, well, they're only hurting themselves. It's not true. When a guy loses his job because he's gambled his life away and he's totally depressed and his wife kicks him out and he can't show up to work on time, you and I are going to subsidize his life. When somebody loses everything they've got to, to, to drugs, we're going to subsidize them. We're going to pay their health care. We're going to pay their income. We're going to buy their food. We're going we're gonna to do all of that. Why would you ever vote for that stuff? I understand that it's a personal choice, but it is a personal choice that in a lot of cases leads to destruction. We are a society that comes together to institute a government to say there are just some things we're not going to allow because they're no good for us. Put the Bible aside, put everything else aside. 
It's just not good for us. And we need to realize that it's okay to say that. And we don't have to be held hostage by this libertarian idea of live and let live. We, we, governments do not live and let live. And we get to decide what kind of society we have. Thank you, Larry. Appreciate it, my man. Good to hear from Larry this morning. Um, th- th- we've had this debate for about a week about libertarians. You know, um, I-, I think, I mean, Larry and I text, I hope he doesn't mind me saying this, Larry and I text over the weekend maybe, and um, he said something very appropriate. He said, you know, I mean, I've referred to myself as a libertarian-leaning Republican, but I'm not a libertarian. I mean, I do have a lot of libertarian beliefs. I don't act on all those beliefs. I try to balance my belief of live and let live with what the responsibilities and system of government. I mean, I can only do so much with governing the country, right? Governing the state, governing the county, governing the community. I mean, I have a hand in that as a voter, office holder, activist, you know, donor, whatever. I mean, there are a lot of us who take different roles in respect to that. But but because I have these feelings and compulsions doesn't mean I vote according. I've got to balance the way I feel about marijuana, the way I feel about gambling. Personally, I would vote against marijuana and for gambling. I don't think gambling is as dangerous as marijuana. But personally, I mean, I can't, I can't take that and, and that alone and go to the ballot box. I mean, I've got to take that and, and consult with a lot of other feelings and emotions and, and, and beliefs I have. And, and libertarians want you to just simply vote on this live and let live bias. Once again, there's a difference in a libertarian and a Republican who has libertarian feelings and emotions. I, I mean, I was raised by a small businessman. I mean, if, if he taught me, I mean, it was all about, you know, the government's out to get me. The government's out to get me. So, um, I mean, that was entrenched and grained upon me. And that's a part of my DNA. That is very deep in my, in my belief system. But when I go to the poll and vote for whether or not we should legalize gambling or marijuana, I can't just take that libertarian bias. I've got to take that libertarian bias and, and kind of hash it out with these other responsibilities I have as a voter what is the role of government i mean is government to keep man and woman safe yeah but i think there there is absolutely responsibility that we have in a civil society of government organizing in a way that we don't hurt ourselves and we don't hurt our fellow man that's kind of a deep argument but a very important one take a break back in a minute i got a couple of other um news items i want to get to before the show ends we've actually got an interview with jeff uh, no 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 jim messina Jim Messina of Messina and Loggins will be at the Performing Arts Center, if I'm not mistaken, Saturday. And we've got an interview with him in the nine o'clock hour. So if you're a big fan of Loggins and Messina or Messina and Loggins, however, um, we've got Jim Messina with us. And I think Rev thinks I'll enjoy it because he's a songwriter. I mean, he's one of these guys who um, takes a lot of pride in his lyrics and, is, you know, um, serious thinkers like yours truly are, are not as. Um, impressed by the safety <laughs> dance as rev is uh we're we're more we're more inclined safety dance. yeah yeah yes yeah, a lot wrong with the safety <laughs> dance but um but uh i want to get to some of this um there's a piece of legislation in the u.s senate and it's kind of interesting to me it's called nopec and it's basically to i mean opec has escaped some of the american law I mean, they've got some sovereignty over law um and um there's an effort to try and hold Saudi Arabia accountable um, away from the sovereign immunity that they've had over the years. And um, I just don't know how you expect Saudi Arabia to pay any attention to what the American lawmakers say or not in regards to how much oil they can produce or not. They, they need about $79 a barrel to pay their bills. 
I mean, their economy is fully predicated upon the, the cost of oil and the organization of the petroleum exporting countries, which is OPEC. Um, I mean, they just, it's kind of a cartel. They do what they choose to do, and, um, you know, you accept it or not. That's your problem. The, the, the issue with NOPEC, and we'll get to Russell Fry in a second because I want to get his opinion on this. So the issue with NOPEC, which is the bill, is the biggest lobbying on behalf of NOPEC is the American Petroleum Institute <laughs> because they want oil to stay expensive. You know, it, it's in their best interest. Uh, they benefit from OPEC restraining supply and, uh, and keeping prices high. So that's kind of um, just something Congress is dealing with as we speak, and I'll get to the weeds on the, um, kind of the, the language of the legislation. But Republican nominee for the 7th Congressional District, Russell Fry, is with us. Good morning, sir. How are you? Good morning. It's good to be here. So it's been a, um, you win the primary, you beat an incumbent, you get Trump's endorsement, and that is, um, I mean, it's crazy times in Russell Fry's world. Yeah, it's, it's it's like drinking water out of a fire hose. Yeah. You know, we are, and, and we're running just as hard as we did in the primary. I mean, you've got to. I've seen too many races where people are not prepared. Uh, they come in, they think they got it in the bag, and they lose. And and you know, we if we're if we're serious about retaking this majority and reclaiming America, then I have to work just as hard as somebody in a swing district. And and Russell, my concern would be, and you know, I've talked a little bit about this, um, beating Tom Rice was something the Trump orbit was motivated by. I mean, you know, you, you were their guy. You're the guy that has a chance to beat Rice. We can't beat Rice and forget there's a Democrat out there waiting to be beat as well. In other words, the job is not finished. Is that something that concerns you? I think so, yeah. The job's not finished. I mean, that was that was uh, halftime, the primary. Now now we're on, you know, we're, we're squeezing toward the end, and we just got to make sure that we finish that job. I mean, the, the choice, I think, for our country is very clear. We've got two paths. You can continue the leftward lurch that we've gone on with the Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi agenda, or we can come back to what works, actually works and puts people to work uh, and works for the country. And that's kind of the, the, the America first agenda that we've, we, that we had, we ushered in a golden era, I think, as you've called it, of, of, of American politics for the American worker, for the American family. We need to return to that. Russell, when you, I mean, you look at your own race and your situation juxtaposed with some of the others around the country, what do you see? I mean, I'm sure you're talking to members of Congress. You're talking to candidates in other places who did win as America First candidates. But um, what is the landscape like? I mean, all I know is what the polls tell me. I mean, I don't talk to anybody in, in Arizona. I don't talk to anybody in Ohio. I don't talk to anybody in North Carolina. I would imagine that you are in cons- consult with some of these folks. What is the um, overriding narrative of the Republicans taking over um, either one chamber or both of Congress? Listen, I, th- I think it, it boils down to the economy. You you know, the Democrats, this is a this is a referendum on the Democratic leadership coming out of Washington, D.C. And so here we go. Let's talk about what they've been able to screw up in the last two years, right? You've got inflation at a 41-year high. You've got gas prices that have doubled. You've got people who can no longer afford things that they once did. You've got the average PD family, Grand Strand family, paying an extra 5000 to $8,000 a year in increased costs. That's that's Joe Biden's America. And so I'm hearing from that, you know, Democrats want to distract right now and create all this narrative about everything else but their record. Right. But they're not talking about the things that the American people are talking about. And I think that's why I'm even having Democrats come up to me and say, I am done. I am done with the Democratic Party. Look at where we are. I'm voting Republican this year. What do you say to the voter who's disenchanted with the binary choice? They obviously don't like the Democrats 
but they're, they're, they're bothered that the Republicans have not held up their end of the bargain. In other words, if you've got a liberal party, you got to have an equal and opposite force to represent the interests of the other half of Americans. And a lot of Republican voters, and I think this is what led to Trump and led to your election, to be honest, right. is uh, fed up with kind of the status quo. When we use words like establishment and elitism and whatnot. But, but what do you tell the Republican voters in anticipation of this new era of Republican politics? Look, look at some of the characters and, and you know candidates that are running. I mean, we have a, a great slate of people who are running for Congress, who are running for the Senate. Uh, they're different. They're, I mean, we were on Fox Radio the other day, and they said, this is kind of the Republicans are the fun party. I mean, look at the stale stuff that's coming out of the Democrat establishment. But Republicans are good on their message. They're good at spreading the conservative movement. They're they're flawed, but they're but they're a little bit of fun. And you know what? I think it's I think that's what we need. We need to get back to the basics. And so, if you don't show up, well, then we know what happens. Look at Georgia two years ago. People didn't show up. They were frustrated. They were mad. And we lost two Senate seats. Right? We've got to show up. Uh, and and we can't just show up on election day. We've got to show up before then and make sure that we're pulling Republicans across the finish line in tight races in the PD, uh, in the Grand Strand, and really everywhere that that you can go. You've got to. You've got to do that because the term, in my in my opinion, the term moderate Democrat really doesn't exist anymore. Russell, as much as the media tries, and they try mighty hard, they're successful and effective in some ways to shift the debate, to try and make us believe it's about student debt or it's about abortion or it's about these other um, ancillary issues. This, this contest, this political contest all over the country will come down to crime, inflation, and the economy. What did the Republican Party intend to do or what does the Republican Party intend to do to address crime, to address inflation and the economic. Listen, matters. I think I think you know the the House Republicans put out a commitment to America a couple of weeks ago. I think that outlines a very excellent blueprint on where we need to go from a congressional standpoint. Uh, you've got to do things. You've got to secure the border. You've got to tackle inflation. You've got to reduce deficit spending, uh, eliminate debt. I mean, these are all things that conservatives get behind all the time, but really the American people get behind. I mean, they it is. Uh, amazing how many people are talking about these things. And you're right. The media tries to distort and distract from what is actually going on. But you look at what's coming out of Washington right now. We were up there a couple weeks ago. And instead of dealing with these big issues, they're tra- they're changing every government form to include 26 different genders, right? I mean, this, this is kind of the silly nonsense coming out of Washington, D.C., where Rome is burning and they're not doing anything. What? What is the priority for you as the um, the representative from this district? I mean, I don't want to say it's all about Florence and Myrtle Beach or Myrtle Beach and, and Florence. I mean, there are a lot of rural areas impacted by policy in this in this district. There's a lot of been a um, there's been a migration of employment and opportunity from the rural areas into other places. But but what does Russell Fry hope to accomplish for his congressional district specifically? You know, a, a congressman can do a lot right but let's 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 measure expectations here too just to, not on just on me but just in general no congressman or senator can wave their wand and make something happen right but you can be the glue that holds things together that puts people in the same room that drives that, that so that we're all rowing in the same direction so you know for me personally i've got state connections i work well incredibly well with the florence delegation i, I serve with these folks I know people on on local government levels, and you know what? That sometimes that takes that that federal, state, and local approach in really synthesizing this. I mean, we you know I was looking at a map yesterday, and it was infuriating because it was all these companies uh, from other countries that were in had a footprint in South Carolina, 
And so you can see obvious clusters when you look at the map on where these companies tend to exist. And they tend to exist in the upstate, in the Midlands, and the low country, right? And so you look at our area, our region, and we've got some, right? There's several that are that are here, and we appreciate them being here. But we're under, you know, we're we're underserved from an economic development standpoint. How do we bolster that? And you talk about uh, small towns a lot. You know, the the best shot in the arm to a small town is to put a a big business near there where people can work, and they're not they're not forced to leave because there's no opportunities. We've got to get back to that. We've got to be that voice, that advocate. And so working with the governor's office, working with the legislature, working on a local government level to help in some capacity, whatever I can do, bring those industries here, that would be fantastic. And I think I should do that. Um, that that's a, a primary role. I want to get infrastructure in just a second of the Grand Strand. You know, I spent a good bit of time down there. But um, Saturday, I'm walking around and there are um, a thousand displaced steps. You know, there are steps laying here and steps laying there. I mean, it's like steps were shells. They're just laying everywhere as a result of Hurricane Eon. Um, Is this just something we accept as part of living in the South and the coastal regions of South Carolina? Are there things that we need to be considering or thinking about in preparing for the inevitable next storm? I think we do well in preparation. I think, uh, you know, uh, unfortunately, we've had a lot of experience with hurricanes in the last, you know, seven, eight years. Uh, but there's always more that can be done. A lot of that's on a local government level, but preparation of, I mean, you, you look at some of the things that FEMA does now as an example, and they come in uh, and help fortify after a storm knocks over something, they fortify it for the next storm. So they kind of enhance the building of whatever they're doing so that you don't have that damage. Uh, and we've got to be prepared. I mean, there's, there's, uh, there's you know, low-lying areas in the PD and the Grand Strand that, that people you know, are prone to flooding. We, we need to be cognizant of that moving forward because these storms exist. I mean, we, re, we remember Hurricane Florence well. I mean, it pummeled us. It, it hurt people here. You know, farms were destroyed. Homes were destroyed. So being prepared is, is what we need to do. How, uh, how important is beach renourishment? I think it's good. I mean, it, it protects property, right? So property uh, for people. Uh, it, uh, you know, helps protect property inland. I mean, you look at the storm surge that we had in the last hurricane, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, Garden City was underwater, but but places in Surfside and Myrtle Beach, they never got it because the dunes did what they were supposed to do. So I think beach renourishment is big. It's it's important, uh, just as much as much as it is smart development, you know, moving forward so that these things are minimized or the impact is minimized. But you know, the 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 driver of our state is tourism, just not not just from the Grand Strand, but really everywhere. Uh, so I think it's always incumbent to to make sure that we're enhancing that and preserving that as best as possible. Is it fair to argue that a big challenge facing you as a member of Congress will be accepting the reality that Myrtle Beach and the Grand Strand, and I'm talking about from Little River all the way to, let's say, Georgetown, that's not just a tourism destination any longer. That's a very desirable place for people to live. Right. So instead of having a summer of a million or so people, it is a urban area now. I mean, it, it's a densely populated or somewhat densely populated populated coastal community. How important is it for you to understand and prioritize and work with the varying agencies to, to, to make sure we don't get further and further behind on the necessary infrastructure to not only handle tourism, but people who call that place home? Right. That's, I think that's, that's big. And we, and we see, you know, with growth is great opportunities, but it also brings challenges. We see this. I think a lot of communities that are growing see that where uh, it's, it's hard to keep up, right? The the infrastructure is lagging behind. So 
that's got to be big. That's a priority. I hear that really everywhere in the district is infrastructure is very important. You look at some of the quality of our roads and what we've got, you know, going on around the district, whether it's rural or urban. Uh, and, and really there's a gut punch to everybody because they're driving over these potholes every single day. So a congressman, um, you know, the primary role is, is mostly federal or excuse me, uh, local and state on dealing with the roads. But can a congressman help? Absolutely. What other um, we're with um, 7th Congressional Candidate Russell Fry, Republican nominee. And, and I want to make sure people don't forget now, we've got an election in November. <laughs> Russell's a little concerned that people are sleepwalking. Um, and I'll say this, it seems to me that the, the narrative is centered around these hotly contested Senate races. You know, who will have control of the Senate? It's kind of a given that the House is going to be in Republican hands, that Russell Fry is going to be a Republican congressman from the 7th Congressional District. Nothing is guaranteed in life. I mean, there's still work to be done. How can people reinvest to make sure um, we don't get a big, big surprise in November? Look, get engaged in the fight. I mean, you know, we need people, candidates that are running for local office need people. Whatever you feel comfortable with, your social media, your grassroots efforts, look, go donate to candidates. I mean, it, it, it helps a lot to be able to put signs in people's yards and be able to be able to do things uh, engage in the process. And so it, it takes money to do that. So candidates need your help. I certainly need your help in that regard. But, you know, look, don't take this for granted. It's not, nothing is guaranteed. I mean, how many times we've seen this every week one of college football, there's always some powerhouse that has a cupcake team scheduled and they lose to the cupcake. Why is that? Because they didn't do the fundamentals previously leading up to the game. So don't don't think that this is a cupcake election because it's not. It's 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 not a gimme. It's not gonna. It's not guaranteed just because we. It should happen. How yeah. alive is the Trump movement? I mean, we've not heard a lot from the former president, but but how alive? I mean, I'm thinking about Blake Masters and J.D. Vance and Dr. Oz and Herschel Walker and yourself. How alive is that movement, and how intense is the energy? The energy is great. So we were just with the president in Wilmington a couple weeks ago. Uh, he was in good spirits, good health. He was punchy on stage, and he still packs out a crowd. People want to see him. They want to return to that. They're frustrated. And when you when you talk to the American people, uh, and really, I mean, people travel from all over to his rally, just to see his rallies. I mean, you've got thousands and thousands. There's never been a movement like it, and there probably won't be for a long time. So, you know, that, that energy, that populism, that focus on the American worker, that's so critical. And so we need to... You know, and we need to harness that. We need to advocate for that. And I think that's what people expect of their leaders is listen to us. It's not just the big corporations. You know, they're important, too. But it's it's the average working family. And what, what people are frustrated about is that no one's listening to them. There's a gut punch that's happening right now uh, to the American worker uh, that we haven't seen in a very long time. Okay, last question. Um, if someone out there listening wants to help, wants to support, wants to volunteer, wants to make a, a contribution – Give us some um, some information that they can attain or, or, or get their hands on to um, to help you be successful uh, in any way they possibly can. Yeah, listen, everything is through our website, RussellFrySC.com. We're on social media, RussellFrySC. We're on Instagram, Twitter, uh, Facebook, Truth, you name it. Uh, but get engaged. I mean, it's it's that important, not just for me, but just for anybody who's running. Let's go get this job done. If we're serious about it, we, we need to go do that. And the more people we have engaged in the process, the more people who are participating, who are donating, who are door knocking, who are calling, uh, the better chance that we have not only for this district, but really 
every district. Let's let's go take this thing back. You're not sleepwalking, and you don't want them to sleepwalk as well. Absolutely. Not Good a deal. chance. Good deal. Good to see you. Good to see you, guys. Russell Frost, Thank seventh you. Republican candidate, 7th Congressional District. Trump endorsed Republican candidate. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937, our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Here's Jim in Florence. Morning, Jim. Hey, good morning, guys. So, Ken, um, Joe Cunningham did, and I went back and watched that that ad on YouTube, and he did mention crime as taking a shot at Henry. Um, but I think we need to get something incredibly straight, that in South Carolina, no success uh, is because of the governor, and no failure is the fault of the governor. Um, the General Assembly is to blame for everything in this state um, to the nth degree, um, even at your very local levels. Um, and one of those biggest things they're to blame for is crime. I mean, that just solely rests hand, at the hands of the General Assembly. Um, now, Cunningham is either a, a liar or he's an idiot because he says he will do a lot of things that he can't do with the stroke of a pen. Um, now, I'm not, a, I'm not necessarily enamored with Henry, but obviously a Democrat's kind of a hard no. And, and libertarians, they're... They're like a 21-year-old college senior with this idealistic view of the world. Um, but, you know, the Libertarian Party, they set out to defend um, these social media platforms that are constantly censoring them and kicking them off. Um, they set out to protect corporations that are making them poor. Um, you know, and the whole Libertarian platform is, is something that can only exist when people do what they're supposed to do. And it can all, also, from a government point of view, um, it can only exist when everybody else is a libertarian. Um, but when you exist in worlds with China um, on a global scale, and when you exist on a local scale with other states that are doing things to draw in businesses and corporations to, to hire people, um, you have to do things to incentivize uh, those businesses to come to you instead of the other states. So inherently, you cannot be libertarian. Um, I think about what you talked about um, with your time on county council um, and attracting these businesses. But thank you, Ken. Thank you, Jim. Appreciate it. But is there a deal to be cut with libertarians? I mean, if libertarians make, in other words, if Republicans seeking office are losing about 3% of the vote based on the loyalty to libertarian candidates, is there a deal we can cut? I mean, when you go as a libertarian to vote for a libertarian candidate, it's a protest vote. I mean, you know what it is. I don't like either party. I mean, people feel empowered when they say loudly and proudly, I don't like either of the parties. So I'm voting in protest. Well, that's a dumb vote. I mean, it just is. I'm sorry. It, it may be a principled vote, but it's a real dumb vote. Because every vote you cast in the name of a libertarian candidate, 90% of those votes would have gone to the Republican so you're giving a half vote, at least, well, probably a little less than a half vote to the Democrat. I mean, if you're a libertarian in Pennsylvania and you don't vote for um, Dr. Oz, you're voting a half vote for Fetterman. Is there a deal to be made? Once again, I think Larry said it better than I. I am a libertarian-leaning Republican. I'm not a libertarian. I have a lot of libertarian beliefs and biases. I don't like regulation. Uh, I don't like prohibition. I don't like, you know, being told where to stand and what to do and, and how to do it. I mean, most of us don't like that. So to some degree, don't all Republicans have a libertarian bias about it? I mean, some are far more um, in tune with a libertarian inner soul, so to speak. 
but I mean, by, by, by just by the, the nature of being a Republican, isn't it understandable that a certain percentage of Republicans would probably be libertarians? Limited government. Yeah, limited lower government, taxes. lower taxes, less involvement, I deregulation. Would think those things line up you know, I don't like a lot of regulation. I don't like a lot of um, organization of government. Uh, I'd rather have fewer uh, bureaucracies with fewer bureaucrats. I think the world would be a, a better place. Um, but that's not the world we live in. We live in a very, and, and I mean, government has a uh, kind of a two-party system, whether we like it or not. And um, and I can remember in my life being so discouraged by the Republicans that I felt like I needed to support the Libertarian. But but supporting the Libertarian today in some of these swing states, I'll say this: um, there's got to be a lot of people vote Libertarian for Henry McMaster to lose the governor's race. There, there doesn't have to be a lot of Republicans vote Libertarian in Arizona for Blake Masters to lose or in Ohio for J.D. Vance to lose. I'm not saying there are different categories of Libertarianism. There, there are different effects it has on elections. So, yeah, I mean, if, if, if 4% vote for Victor, what's his last name, the, the, his Libertarian candidate, um, and I saw a poll yesterday had him at 15%. I mean, there's no way in the world the Libertarian candidate gets 15%, but it had Masters down 9 well, I mean, if the Libertarian gets 15%, Masters probably will lose by nine. That ain't happening, but that's the argument the, the pollster's trying to make. And, and I just think that we got to figure out a way because we're so closely divided. We're so equally divided in our country. And, and I understand the Jeff argument. Jeff talked about Jill Stein and, you know, the Green Party. The Green Party candidate got 1.5 million votes. The Libertarian candidate got 4.5 million votes. There's a 3 million vote difference there. How many more votes would Donald Trump have needed to get to be reelected president in 2020? Far less than 3 million. I can assure you that. And 90% of that 3 million go to the Republican. Once again, I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about the libertarian. I mean, we've, we've identified the difference in the number of votes. There were 3 million more votes for the libertarian than there were for the green party candidate. So if 90% of those votes go for the libertarian, Donald Trump gets reelected in some of these hotly contested swing states, and we don't have. I mean, maybe we have the Fed doing what it's doing. Maybe we have, you know, inflation and crime and uh, economic matters that discourage the American electorate. I mean, maybe that's the case, but we'll never know. Because once again, Biden won under certain circumstances. I mean, weird circumstances during a pandemic anyway. Combine that with the realities of the Libertarian Party. And I went to Reason.com. If I want to know what – I'll tell you this. I mean, if you're out there listening and you'd like to know where I get my research from, uh, if I want to know what Libertarians are thinking, I go to Reason, R-E-A-S-O-N.com. Um, here's their free minds and free markets. Uh, I'll read you. You ready? Education freedom wins big in Arizona. Um, Putin may have panicked. Uh, Putin, have you panicked? You can survive a nuclear exchange. Biden chips away at Trump's deregulatory legacy with a new gig worker rule. Um, Gavin Newsom vetoed California crypto regulations. I mean, you'll find the word regulation on the on the uh, the cover page of their website. Um, regulation, regulation, you know, um, prohibition, regulation. I mean, it's it's all about you know what the government is trying to do, and Republicans don't like that. But Republicans need to understand, or excuse me, Libertarians need to understand that Republicans aren't your enemy. I mean, they're your exit ramp. Libertarians are not going to win elections. 
they they may eventually i mean this party may thrive and prosper and help people get frustrated with the with the duopoly that they choose to um you know vote libertarian more and more and more and more but right now the biggest friend the democrats have is a libertarian voter in arizona a libertarian voter in ohio a libertarian voter in pennsylvania i would actually if i run to the campaigns i probably should have asked Haley this on Monday, if I were running the campaigns, you know where I'm getting ready to go. If my, if I were running the campaign of Dr. Oz, I'd make a plea to the Libertarian voter in Pennsylvania. If I were Blake Masters, I'd make a plea to the Libertarian candidate in, excuse me, the Libertarian voters in Arizona. I would make a plea. I mean, every state that is so hotly contested, and we know the Senate's going to be close. We know it's going to be real iffy and dicey about who controls the Senate. Why does it matter so much, Ken? They're not going to override a Biden veto. No, but Biden has nothing to do with who the Senate investigates or not. Can we investigate why the FBI went to Facebook and said, hey, alter your algorithms and suppress this story? I think I explained that fairly well yesterday. I mean, I do a lousy job at times of explaining some of these things. Once again, when Zuckerberg appeared on Joe Rogan's podcast, he didn't say we went to the FBI and told them that we had this um, th- this information about Hunter Biden's laptop. I mean, that would be bothersome. I mean, that would be troubling, but that's not alarming. I mean, that's not really surprising. So a Silicon Valley billionaire went to the FBI trying to figure out whether he could or could not, under some of the rules and guidelines, you know, suppress a story by altering his algorithms. That's not the way it played out. The FBI went to Zuckerberg, went to Facebook, and said, there's this information, we need you to suppress it. I mean, that is the FBI actively involving itself in an election. Do we know that to be true? No, we don't know it to be true. Why? Because we've never investigated. Why haven't we investigated? Because the Democrats are in charge of the House and Senate. So, yeah, I mean, policy, you'd love to have a supermajority to override a Biden veto on some economic matter. We don't. Probably never will. But you can have the majority chairing a committee that finds out whether or not the FBI did what Zuckerberg said they did. What happened in the 2020 presidential election? I mean, some say we've investigated. Argue, no, we haven't. We've made conclusions. We've had courts decide not to hear uh, a case, but we've not had a full-fledged investigation about what happened in the 2020 election. Why? Because Democrats have been chairing the committees. If the Republicans get in charge, they have investigative authority and they can explore any avenue they choose. Now, once again, I'm all about an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I would not in any way, shape, or form um, disallow the minority leader. If, if the Democrats are the minority and they wanted these three people to sit on that committee, I would absolutely allow whomever the minority leader decided they wanted as their representative because if you don't, to be on sham. that. Well, I mean, it's a sham. Sure, it's a sham. It's, it's a witch hunt. You're right. So, um, I, I don't, you know, as, as much as I'd like, I mean, I'm all about fighting fire with fire. And if you throw a punch, I, I'm, I'm throwing one back. But I would not return the favor when it comes to Pelosi doing what has never been done in American history, disallowing a minority leader from appointing on their committee as their representatives who they choose. No, we get to not only choose who we want to represent the majority, we also get to choose who we want to represent the minority. That, my friends, is a complete and total sham slash witch hunt. Let's go to the phone. Here's Jeff in Florence. Hello, Jeff. Hey, good morning. Hey, Jeff. Hey, um, just just to just to want to ask you a couple quick facts, 
um, just if you know the answer. Well, like, if you go to ask me facts, they're not questions now. <laughs> yeah. Like, is it is it a fact that there was Russian uh, propaganda spread in the 2016 election? Did the GRU spend money? Did 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 Facebook take money to run ads for the Russians in political campaigns in the United States. Was there Russian meddling in the election? Yes, there always is. No, no, I mean cash. Did Facebook take payments in rubles from Russia to run ads against Hillary Clinton? I have no idea. I know there was Russian meddling well, as there always look is. That up for me. Yeah, just just look that up. You know, when you get a chance. Okay. Because the simple fact is we know that and, you know, we talk about, you just mentioned Jill Stein. We know that Russia received polling data and information from Paul Manafort, right? You, you'll, you'll agree to that, right? Uh, yeah, sure. Okay. The, 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 the Trump campaign manager, who is indebted to a, a, a owed money to Russian oligarchs, gave Republican Party and Trump data to the Russians. Okay, on campaign strategies and polling data and in Russian uh, or or um, people's private information to the Russians, they did that. Correct. That has been reported, widely reported. I don't know that, well, but I mean, it's been widely reported. To it, so I mean, he, he pled guilty to it. Okay. Did. Okay, and and he's actually given interviews that said, "Yes, I did it," and Trump has said, "If." The Russians want to give me help. Why wouldn't I take it? So that that happened. And when you talk about the amount of votes that Trump needed in 20 versus the amount of votes Hillary lost by in certain districts, it only takes about 100,000 votes to swing an election if you put them in the right states because of the Electoral College, correct? Jeff, the point you're making, but but I mean, would you agree that the DNC and the Clinton campaign paid for the um the dossier? Sure. Would you yes. would you yes. agree yes. that the dossier was probably more influential in the 2016 election than any ruble may have uh, passed hands no. between the Russian government and Facebook? No, I'm gonna say you're, no, you're cherry picking. Not. I mean, now we're finding no, out I, the FBI. Let, let me finish. Let Jeff, let's do this. Hang on, because we got to take a break. I'm way behind, but I don't want to cut you off. I want to make sure you have plenty of time to to give your opinion. We just got to take a break. Hang there, and we'll get back as soon as we return on the other side. Welcome back, Jeff's on the line. Still there, I think. Let's go back to him. Hey, Jeff, you're on. Yes, I'm here. Hey guys. Hey, have at it. All right. Um, so, you know, I, I'm, ju I'm just trying to point out to you uh, a couple things, right? Whether it was the most influential story or not in the 2016 campaign, there was a lot of stories. It's the fact that um, the comparisons to the 20 and the 2016 campaign are, are similar. And we need to be vigilant with social media and foreign influence would you uh, uh, that's that's my point here i'll agree with that you, i'll, I'll agree know. with that and, I, and, I, and facebook admitted i mean if you go back to senator franking i think that was in 17 or 18 i mean when he had somebody from facebook appear before a committee i mean they they admit they missed it i mean they said that we should have never allowed those rubles to be exchanged for political advertising i mean facebook admitted that in front of a senate committee yeah, and, and, and so that was the canary in the coal mine, right? This is how they're going to mess with us. And when I say us, I mean Republicans and Democrats. At some points, foreign entities are going to 
want Democrats to lose or Republicans? They want us all to lose. Can we agree to that? We can agree to that. Okay. And so, so my point is when, when Zuckerberg went on Joe Rogan's show and said, the FBI came to us and said, we think whether it, you're Republican or Democrat, we think this information might be not valid. They've got a, 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 a responsibility as a corporation that exists inside the United States to take that seriously. Whether they handled it correctly, whether they're biased, we can, you, can, you can believe everybody's in on it and there's a big, uh, dark, deep state in the FBI that wants Trump to lose, or you can believe that they're Americans and they don't want foreign company, governments. Can you be both, Jeff? Can you be both? Can can both exist? Yes, they can. So it doesn't bother you. Does it bother you that the FBI, let let me me say this, does it bother you that that same FBI that went to Zuckerberg and said there may be this story we need to suppress, does it bother you that that same FBI offered Christopher Steele a million dollars to corroborate the dossier? Yeah, they offered him a million dollars to prove it was true, and he couldn't do it. Correct. All of it, right? But the FISA warrant issued by the FBI. Now look at it. But, 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 Jeff, but the FISA warrant secured by the FBI was secured based on what? The dossier. uh, On some of the information in the dossier. Which was not ever corroborated, was never proven to be true. Some of it was, and and some of it is not. Not all things are true, and not all things are, are. I don't right. believe I'll say this and then I'll let you I'll get I'll let you finish. I don't believe everybody the FBI is politically motivated. I do believe the political hierarchy of the FBI saw Trump as a threat not to American democracy, but rather the deep state, the elite, the establishment, the status quo. Uh, there are a lot of words we throw around to describe that. Yes, I believe that with every fiber of my being. I believe equally that there are good, decent people working for the FBI that don't care if you're a Republican or a Democrat, but the political hierarchy of the FBI appear to be very, very politically motivated and very one-sided in their political motivation. I believe that with every fiber of my being. And when the FBI went to Facebook, I mean, didn't they already have the laptop and know that it was legit? Well, that's a lot of the complaint. You you know more than we. You've got the laptop in your possession. Excuse me? But is it all legit, or is some of it legit? Well, I mean, you can't sit there and say that the Steele dossier is all lies, and and then turn around and say that the Hunter Biden laptop can't have misinformation on it. No, but the one thing you said last week, and I totally agree with this because I went back and rehashed our conversation. Let's scrutinize everybody equally. If it's Ivanka Trump in China, let's find out. If it's if it's Hunter Biden in Ukraine or Joe Biden's brother and Barisma, let's find out. I've got no problem with that. Let's just apply the law equally, and 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 I think everybody will end up with a better America. Thanks, Jeff. I'm sorry. I mean, that, that's just kind of the, I, I, yeah, I mean, no problem. Buddy. Okay, th- thank hey, you very much. Yeah, we, we, um, we got to take a hard break here in about 10 seconds. Thank you, Jeff. Appreciate it. And, and that's not an argument. I mean, I think Jeff and I agree. I mean, let's apply justice equally. I'm just not sure the FBI is. In fact, I'm sure they aren't. Back in a minute. 843 I want to go back to real early this morning when I said something. I just got a text. Um, I never said Max Fried's not a good pitcher. I just said he's not a dominant pitcher. Max Fried is a good pitcher. He's not a dominant pitcher. 
and he's a good pitcher with a very checkered record when it comes to big games. You would agree to that? Yeah, although he had a big game performance in last year's World Series. I didn't just he? said he's a, been a mixed bag. I didn't yeah. say he's been every, every big game Max Fried's ever pitched <laughs> and he failed. No, I'm just saying he's been a mixed bag in some of these big games on, on certain times. And in all honesty, he was. He, I think he's recovering from the flu right now, and he was must not have been up to strength or speed yesterday. And I said <laughs> that's, and, and that's I, the and excuse. I, and I think Freehold will admit this. I mean, the, the, the Braves are a better team than the Phillies because they've got a deeper pitching staff. But in a five-game series, that deep pitching staff may or may not pay dividends. The depth of roster, the deep, the deep pitching rotation, um, the good arms in the bullpen. I mean, all that matters a lot in a 162-game season. None of that matters as much in a in a five-game series, a three-game series in particular. And the Braves are, I mean, they're on the hot seat right now. I mean, they won the division. They came from 10 and a half back to catch the Mets. Um, they may have emptied a lot of the tank. In making that run, you know what I mean. You, you, what's the old saying in NASCAR? A lot of difference in catching and passing. Well, not only did the Braves catch the Mets, they actually passed the Mets. Um, that took a lot of gas out of the tank, and a lot of emotional energy was probably expended mm -hmm. as a result of that. And now they've got to kind of regroup and 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 say, okay, new. Uh, it's a new day in Atlanta, and then the Phillies won Game One. We've got to figure out a way to get back even, uh, and then go to Philadelphia and try to win one of those two. Come back to Atlanta you know, for a potential clinching game. I think it's 2-2-1, two, two and one, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, some of this cost-saving, they're doing 3-2 and two or 2-3, two and three, so teams don't have to travel um, so much. But all of the highly, all of the all of the um, higher-seeded teams won last night and yesterday, except the Braves. Uh, and they got behind a good bit, 6-1, to one, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and Free just did not look good. Um, I went back and watched some of the um, commentary. I didn't see it live, didn't listen to it live i was busy trying to make out a living but i did go back and watch some of the youtube video and some of the commentary and they did say freed looked tired he looked worn um i guess as a result of um him getting over over the flip i remember the last game he pitched he got sick in the middle of the game and they had to had to leave so. gotcha i want to i want to give that something we discussed a little bit earlier today and that is this um it's kind of an interesting it's a catchy name um no peck and that means that um the U.S. Senate committee, and I think this happened last Thursday or Friday, um, they passed a bill. And once again, the body's not voted on it. This came out of committee. And the bill, um, they say, here's their word, not mine, it will expose the organization of the petroleum exporting countries, that's OPEC, and its partners, uh, really a partner in Russia, um, for lawsuits on collusion for boosting oil prices. In other words, they are arguing, the U.S. government is, that OPEC and its membering nations, along with Russia, are colluding to affect or impact the price of energy of which we all have to deal with. Uh, boosting oil prices is a result of that. It's a bipartisan bill, and it, here's the name of the bill. You ready? The No Oil Producing and Exporting Cartels Act of 2021, NOPEC. That would strip OPEC and its... Um, the nationally owned oil companies. I mean, their their oil companies are owned by the government, but that would um, strip them from this um, sovereign immunity that has protected them from lawsuits uh, for for I mean, forty years, maybe even fifty or sixty years. Um, so the oil states would no longer have immunity from jurisdiction of the I guess U.S. courts if this law because excuse me if this bill becomes law. Now, that, that's a reach for me. I mean, you're basically saying to Saudi Arabia that we're going to pass a bill in Washington 
that says what you can and cannot do in how you produce oil and how much you produce and how you affect or impact the market. I mean, if I'm Saudi Arabia, I've got some choice words for the U.S. Senate, but I'll reserve those to um, the Saudi Arabians. Now, it's kind of interesting here. Politics make strange bellfellows, right? You know who is the biggest fan of OPEC this morning? The American Petroleum Institute. <laughs> they are lobbying against um, this bill because they benefit when OPEC, I guess, restrains production, um, curtails production, keeps the prices higher, higher. So they vehemently and fundamentally oppose this bill. Um, so the American Petroleum Institute and OPEC are on the exact same page and um, in making sure this bill doesn't become law of the land. Now, here's the point I want to make. So, so the U.S. government is going to pass a piece of legislation that they are going to argue gives them the authority to decide how much oil is produced by Saudi Arabia. I, I just, for the life of me, can't imagine the minister of energy at Saudi Arabia giving a, a rat's rear end. They'll just laugh. I mean, you got to believe they will. I mean, you know, they are kind of the dictators of oil prices in the world and have been for many, many years. Do we have um, Jim on the phone? Okay, yes. we've got Jim Messina on the phone. Special guest for our listeners here. We normally talk politics, but we know our audience. We know our demo, and we know the age and um, uh, cultural proclivities of our audience, and they may have an interest in someone who will be at the Performing Arts Center Saturday night. And that is Jim Messina. Mr. Messina, how are you? Good. Good morning, sir. How are you today? We are doing well. Now, I'm going to tell you, I got educated. I knew Loggins and Messina, Messina and Loggins. I didn't know that, that you were in Buffalo Springfield and Poco. Those were early in your music career. Is that right? That is correct. Yeah, that kind of was the beginning of my uh, my days as a producer, engineer, and, and musician, which eventually led me up to the opportunity to work with Kenny and, and uh, become Loggins and Messina. What would you call your kind of music, Mr. Messina? Well, I worked for years to uh, not label it. Um, I don't know that I want to do that now, but I will tell you <laughs> that uh, I will tell you that we, we played around with, uh, with country and uh, I loved rock and roll. I was a big fan of James Burton, Joe Osborne, you know, of course, Ricky Nelson's bass player and guitar player over the years and as Elvis and eventually he became a dear friend of mine and uh, I loved what he did I loved the rockabilly thing and I thought you know there must be some way to put rock and country together and that's what I played with and that's I think what we ended up at least doing back in those days you're an accomplished musician accomplished songwriter what is more fun for you to write a great song or, or to play a great song you know, for for me, it's a combination of both. Um, over the years, I, I never thought I would ever be successful as a musician. When I moved to Hollywood, there were just too many great people there already working, like Leon Russell and, and Glenn Campbell were all part of that wrecking crew. So, I, you know, I got into engineering and the producing, and then eventually when I got a chance to play ba bass with the Buffalo Springfield, you know, Ahmed Erdogan uh, asked me if I would be willing to produce them. And uh, I had done some smaller stuff and I said, sure. And then when I got a, actually a chance to, to join the band as a bass player, when they lost their guy, suddenly I was doing everything that I love to do. And I must say that I enjoy probably most to answer your question is writing a, a great song and then being able to get out in front of an audience and perform it and look at their faces and, and watch the, uh, the joy or the enjoyment that they experience. 
it seems that musicians of your era, I'm, 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 in, I'm nearly 60 years old, you're a good bit older than I am, but it seems to musicians of your era just don't want to stop playing music. Is, is that, I mean, is that the inspiration to continue to do what you've always done, always loved, always wanted to do? I'm not going to tell folks how old you are, but, um, but, but I mean, you remember Buffalo Springfield, you remember of, of Poco, but, but I mean, w- when you get to your age and you're still on the road touring, playing music in front of people, it's got to be because you love doing it, right? Well, I started out, my father was a guitarist and I started out at four or five years old watching him do what he did. And I was so, I guess, I wouldn't have known what the word would be, but yes, I was inspired to want to learn how to do that. And eventually, as I became a teenager and I started listening to music, I was so inspired by the sounds that I was hearing. You know, I loved, I loved the champs when I was growing up, you know, tequila, and I loved the sound of that, that cymbal hitting on there and the rhythms. And by high school, I just started playing music at, at uh, 13, 14 years old. And I will tell you, I, I don't feel any different now uh, and I'll be honest with you, I'm going to be, you know, 75 my next birthday. I don't feel any different than I did in those days. And I think, I guess what I've learned is that music and all the different parts of it that I'm involved with in the business is a way of life for me. So, you know, if I was a farmer and I was milking cows, I guess I'd still be milking cows. <laughs> When people come to your show Saturday night in, in Florence, and I want to thank you for coming on our show and, and coming and visiting our hometown. It's a, um, it's, a, it's a facility we're very proud of here. It's a part of a university, the Performing Arts Center at Francis Marion University. What sort of show can they expect from Jim Messina? Well, I'm going to give them an array of my, my whole career. I'll probably start out acoustically doing songs like uh, Watching the Run or House of Corner. We'll move into doing some Danny song from the L&M stuff. And then I do some Poco tunes. Uh, you better think twice. Uh, I think we do Kind Woman in honor of, of the passing of Rusty Young. And then I'll get into doing, you know, country stuff like listen to a country song, Holiday Hotel. And then I start moving into some of the more higher energy stuff that I've done that are more rock, Latin, and jazz oriented. You know, Angry Eyes, Imama Don't Dance, stuff like that. That is very interesting. Mr. Messina, we appreciate your time once again. Uh, Jim Messina will be live and in concert October 15, 730 at the Francis Marion University Performing Arts Center. Encourage our listeners. I mean, if you're of that era, enjoy good music. Go by and see someone who has um, left a mark on modern American music. Thank you very much, Mr. Messina. Thank you, Sue, for your time and your audience. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Kind of an interesting guy. I mean, you, you oh, Rev, yeah. Rev asked me yesterday, would we be, be interested in interviewing? Um, I didn't know he was in Buffalo Springfield. I think I did know that he was in Poco. I mean, for some stupid reason, I knew, obviously, Loggins and Messina, but I don't think I knew that he was an original member of Buffalo Springfield. But um, I mean, that's, what, five decades of music? That would be three groups that are, I mean, I'm not saying they're, they're you know, the Rolling Stones, but most people know who Buffalo Springfield is. Most people know who Poco was. Um, and obviously, Kenny Loggins and Jim Messina um, left their mark. So, um, you know, some hits. a very noteworthy artist in, um, in Florence at the Performing Arts Center. And if you're interested, um, I would imagine you can go by the box office or Ticketmaster or FMUPAC.org. Yeah, I want to be careful, man. There you go. FMUPAC.org um, to get your tickets. So, um, yeah, if you're, um, if you're a casual or um, connoisseur of music, um, he would be one of the guys that um, Rev said to me, I think Rev tried to kind of convince me um, to be interested in the interview. He's a great songwriter. And I think when you read some of his um, Wikipedia, 
and some of the information we have, he's a very accomplished songwriter. I've always wondered to the singer songwriter artist, is it more fun? I mean, obviously I think it's gotta be harder to write a song. That's a, that's than a good to question a when you asked him that, but what's more fun. I mean, the gratification you get from, um, a song that you write or a song that you play, you, you know where I'm headed. Mm-hmm. I mean, nobody could play the guitar solo in jump like Eddie Van Halen. I mean, and everybody knows that. But but what was it more fun to arrange and compose and write that music than it is uh, to play it? It seems to me that playing is almost second nature for those guys. I mean, they could do it in their sleep, so to speak. But songwriting and composing and producing that that would be a um, a more arduous task that I would probably find a touch and more. When we gratifying. talk about you know great artists and bands and one of the one of the factors that play into whether they're great or not in some in some of our discussions is the longevity. And, and here you have a guy who was making music back in the 60s successfully, all right, and still out touring today. Yeah, well, so I'd, I'd read he was 70 or would be 75 in December. I didn't want to say that. But, um, yeah, but a guy 75 getting in a car, plane, I don't know how he travels, uh, motorhome, whatever. But uh, I mean, there's, there's something inside of you to, to make you want to get um, out of your house. And I think he lives in Franklin, Tennessee, just outside of Nashville, from what I read, to make him want to get on a bus or a plane or a car and drive to Florence to play music at 75 years old. I mean, there's got to be a labor of love to some degree because you got to believe the guy at some point in time in the last 50 or 60 years has said, I don't want to do this anymore. I mean, I'm tired of who has not said that after doing something 20 or 30 or 40 years. I don't want to do this anymore. Um, and, and you wonder, I mean, I guess it still pays the bills. You know, we imagine those who have been successful in the music world just do it because they want to. No, some have to do it. I mean, I, I've heard stories and read articles about musicians that you would believe are far more financially secure than they were, but they made some bad decisions early in their music lives. Um, they sold the rights to their catalog, you know, at an early age. They never got those back. They never got as wealthy as you would imagine. I mean, I'm speculating. I have no idea, but it sounds to me like the guy just likes playing music, likes performing in front of an audience, and he'll be in Florence Saturday night at 730 at the FMU PAC. And that's how you can go find tickets, F-M-U-P-A-C. So if you want to be nostalgic, walk back down memory lane. Um, remember a Buffalo Springfield, Poco, or Loggins, Loggins and Messina song. I would imagine he'll bring the full uh, repertoire. And that is a great facility. If you have not been to the Performing Arts Center, uh, you should go. Uh, because not only is it a great facility, the acoustics are awesome. It's a great place to see and hear a show. Kind of like Relief Fight. It'll change your life. <laughs> Let's go to the phone. Uh, David in the PD. Hi, David. Man, your mama don't dance, your daddy don't rock and roll. That, that was a good interview, Ken. Um, I I remember somebody interviewed uh, a couple years ago, Tulsi Gabbard, and I think she has got out the Democrat Party. You see that? I do. Yeah, it's all over the I'm news. Telling, maybe, maybe you and Dave. Uh, I'm going to cause that. I don't know. <laughs> oh, hey, 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 stop, stop right there, David. Oh, I'm going to make Rev do this. You ready, David? Oh, gosh. Rev, yeah. I want you to repeat to David <laughs> and our listeners what you told me yesterday. Oh, I knew you were going to do Because I'm the arrogant ass. They know that. I mean, right. They don't expect this from you. But I want you to repeat to our listeners what you said yesterday after we found out Tulsi Gabbard had bolted from the Democrat Party. <laughs> well, yes, uh, David, you're right. She came and she did an in-studio interview with us. So she was here in studio when she was running for the Democrat nomination for president of a few years ago and uh, and she's very nice and did a great interview i think the listeners liked it and we took some pictures and did all that so i said yesterday after she announced this 
that she is leaving the Democrat Party. I said, you know, maybe we had an effect on her. Maybe, maybe we, we we helped her, yeah. you know, know that the, you know, the Trump supporting MAGA crowd, America first guys just aren't all that bad. We're so, kind of, we can be nice. So Tulsi, what Tulsi, what is Rev saying, David, is Tulsi meant to say <laughs> yesterday on her podcast that there, there was this guy named Dave Baker that I met <laughs> in Florence, South Carolina. And, and just, I mean, his aura, his invincibility um, revealed yeah. to me that I was on the wrong team and I needed to be a part of the movement that Dave Baker was a part of. So, um, you know, no, no, no arrogance here. No, no, um, no attitude or, um, or ego here. Hey, if you can put that picture back where you, she was in between you two guys. If you ever talk about bookie Cheshire cats, <laughs> That's you and Dave there, brother. Well, I'll probably I mean, get in trouble when I say this between. anyway. She was a fit thing. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll just say that. Hey. That was my comment when she left, David. I, I, full disclosure, when she walked out of the door, I told Rev, I said, she was a fit thing. <laughs> yeah, hey, we're globalists when it comes to women. I can assure you that. <laughs> I, hey, I, I just want you to, real quick with uh, my man Mike Philly, I tell you, Bo, they got some scrappy, hairy dudes, man. I mean, I, I watched that game yesterday. It looked like they're all kind of hairy. They got long hair and beards and this and that. Hippies. And, just, hey, just one thing I was thinking about Pennsylvania. I, I love Pennsylvania. It's an interesting state. But where – I'm going to say this. I could, You know I don't like that Fetterman. I told you that yesterday. Where, where, where Dr. Oz has got to pick up some boats. I call it the Philly suburbs. And back in uh, – 2016, Trump lost them by about 190,000. And then in 2020, he lost that, those suburbs by about 290,000. Now, Biden won that state by 80,000. So that, that's where Dr. Oz, he's got to make his appeal. I think he can do it. I think a lot of these people live in these suburbs are what you call the, the females, college educated, this, that. Hopefully, he could pick up something. But that Fetterman, I just can't stop him how anybody would want to vote for that guy but anyway y'all have a good day thank you david appreciate that i'll go back to something we began the show with this morning we did kind of a brave report a little bit major league baseball report um brought to you by bird of a thousand gods but um real clear politics did something the day before yesterday and i i saw it yesterday but i didn't have a chance to really go over it the way i wanted to did last night um the adjusted polling average what does that mean that means the polling we have today adjusted based upon what the historical biases have been in the past two presidential elections and fast, past four midterms. So, so it's been adjusted. It's not, I mean, it's not what the polling says, but it's what we believe the polling will, excuse me, what the results will be based on some of the skewing, some of the, uh, I mean, Kahaley says the manipulating of the data. Um, now, now I don't know that to be true. We'll find out. But in, um, in Pennsylvania, Oz ends up plus 2.2. Now, who knows? But but Pennsylvania polling has him down about two or three now. That the adjusted the adjustment based on historical biases have him up 2.2. We shall see. Take a break. Back in a minute. I want to pose a question, and I don't have an answer to this, but somebody texted me during the break and said that um, you know, Jim Messina is a world class musician. What exactly is world class? I mean, when someone says he has a, um, I mean, they're a world-class vocalist, they're a world-class writer, they're a world-class runner, they're a world-class entertainer. 
What, what, I mean, I know there's not an exact definition of world is class. It, is it like top uh, elite? I, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't have any idea. I mean, generational talent. <laughs> I'm good about, hey, that kid's got generational talent. Says who? Says the... um. Says the advanced studies on generational talent. The Ken Art advanced studies on um, world class. You know, <laughs> it's just kind of interesting how we adopt and adapt these phraseologies that, that really and truly are, I mean, they're vague and inexact, but they, they, they proclaim somebody to be better than, than anybody else. Um, who is a world-class musician, Rev? I mean, when I say world-class musician, you hear what? When I say generational talent, I mean, when I hear generational talent, I think of Trevor Lawrence and Jadavion Clowney. I mean, I'll give the Clemson and Carolina kind of an equal billing sure. there. I mean, generational talent. Clowney was a generational talent. Trevor Lawrence was a generational it means talent. means they only come, come around not very often. Correct. And, and you, in a generation. But world class. I mean, what, who is a um, Celine Dion is a world class vocalist as far as I'm concerned. I mean, when she sings, she does things with her voice, and I don't understand octaves and all that good stuff, but she under, she does things with a voice that very few people on the planet can do. Um, she would be a world-class vocalist, as far as I'm concerned. Now, now there may be some student of the opera who says, no, I mean, Celine Dion's not a world-class vocalist. You know, Pavarotti is, you know, or, or somebody right. like that. Um, but when I say world-class musician, what, what, what do you hear? I, I mean, was Eddie Van Halen was obviously a great rock and roll guitarist, but was he a world-class guitarist? And I think the uh, the ingredients we talk about that make a successful, long-performing career uh, probably all play into being perceived as world-class. So it's elite level, and it's someone who's achieved probably a, a com commercial success, respect from your peers, um, longevity of being doing whatever is they do. Is it the same thing as great? We just like to call it world class. I, I think you're probably trying to describe a, a, le a level better than great. Okay, let's do this. Freehold, jump in here. Was Greg Maddox a world-class talent? But he's a world-class pitcher. World-class pitcher, and that's, but that's what made him so great, is he didn't right. throw 100. And that's where I'm headed. So is, 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 um, is Keith Richards and Mick Jagger a world-class um, singer and, and guitarist? I mean, it'd be hard to argue they are, yeah, the wouldn't it? The answer is yes. You think, are. though? Oh, yeah. Okay, under under what definition? Uh, everything I just listed. Okay. Right? But that's your list. It's my right? Well, yeah, and that's so, what you're so, asking my opinion. It's subjective. I mean, it's, of course it is. So, so we're offering but, the but highest. I'd like, I'd like somebody to argue that, that Mick and Keith are not world-class. Can you do that? Well, I mean, world-class rock and roll band. But but so you're, you're kind of making my point for me, and it's real hard to get there. So if, if Keith Richards... I mean, maybe he's a world-class guitarist. I wouldn't know a world-class guitarist if I heard one. I mean, there's no way I could distinguish. I mean, I've heard that Eric Clapton was really good. I mean, when I hear Eric Clapton play, I mean, he sounds like, I mean, he's really good, but I've heard a lot of other people sound like Clapton, right? I mean, I can't, I don't have the ear to distinguish what Clapton or Chet Atkins or Eddie Van Halen are doing that the other guy can't do. When I hear the guy in Savannah on River Street, I mean, I think he's as damn good as Van Halen. I mean, but he's not. He's obviously not. Somebody can distinguish. What is different between that world class and not? When I hear Celine Dion, I mean, to me, I hear a world class voice. But somebody in the opera might say, no, she's got too many flaws and, you know, she can't do this and she can't do do that. Um, so let's go to, to, to Richards and, and um, Mick Jagger. There's no way you're arguing that Mick Jagger's a world class vocalist. I mean, he's a world class front man, right? Exactly. But he's not a world class vocalist. Right. But but the idea of making music is to sing really well and play music really well, or is it? 
I mean, we're offering these superlatives as if they were so easily distinguishable. And, and I'm just saying they're not. Um, Greg Maddox was not a world-class talent, but he was a world-class pitcher. Keith Richards may or may not. Once again, I don't know. I know that Mick Jagger doesn't sound like a world-class vocalist, but the Rolling Stones may or may not be the greatest right. rock and roll band Here's ever. Here's a question for you. <clears throat> Bob Dylan, world-class songwriter, not a world-class singer. I would agree to that. <laughs> I not would even absolutely close. agree to that. Not even a good singer. I, I, by I the would way. totally. But but you would even accept that he's probably a world class songwriter, he's perceived by some. Sure. But but sucks. So so let's do this. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of weird lyrics that nobody understands. But um. But if you dig in a little bit, um. That there, I mean, take some hallucinogenic drugs and then try to understand okay. Dylan. Right. It's a lot better. I'll run into him on but, River I'm Street. I'm not, not arguing a point. I'm not arguing a point. I'm just saying, yeah. you know, generational talent, world class. What we throw these things around, yeah. and I think that's better. It's better than great, is what you're trying to describe. Because there's a lot of a lot of artists you would say would probably fall into great. Man, they are just great. I love them. I love to see them. I, I buy their music or whatever. But I think when you use words like world class and generational, you're trying to describe a level that is greater than great very few can do it as well as they do is that fair to say i think that's, i mean yeah. it's an it's a level of elitism i mean yeah. it's truly elite and a meritocracy i mean this guy is a world-class guitarist um we don't know what else he is i mean he may be a bad husband you know what i mean he may suck at singing he may not be a good songwriter but this cat is a world-class guitarist this person is a world-class um entertainer i, I just think it's interesting that we um we, 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 I don't know, Rev, we, um, we identify people as such and such. And this is a good friend of mine who sent that text a second ago. And, um, you know, if you go see Jim Messina, uh, let me ask you this. If you go see Jim Messina Saturday night, how many people truly know whether he's world-class or not? Sound damn good to me. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, that, that would be my take <laughs> on it. And that's what matters. Sure. You, I mean, it, it, you entertain, you enjoy it. But but who, okay, the, the guy that you like on YouTube, and, you, and you've convinced me I like to watch you now, Rick Beatty. Rick Beato. Beato. Okay, he would be the guy that could sit in that audience Saturday night at the Performing Arts Center and tell you whether or not Jim Messina is a world-class guitarist. I would trust And him. why? Yep. Right. I mean, he would say, no, nah, I mean, look, look at, I mean, when you do this, I mean, this is one of the most difficult things guitar players have to do, or, you know, mandolin players have to do, or banjo players have to do. Um, that's kind of, um, I, I, I was with a friend of mine who played in a rock band and we were watching a Springsteen video. This is a good 20 years ago. And we're watching a Springsteen video and it's live at Hyde Park or uh, Wembley Stadium. I mean, it's an enormous crowd and he's up there and I, and my buddy's watching. I've never played in a band, never sang in a band um kind of wanted to what kid doesn't want to you know be in a rock and roll band but he's sitting there and i mean they never made it big they played around the beach and they played a little bit in columbia and they had some success uh, as he said we always had money to put gas in the car and then buy beer um but but when he's watching that video and, and and springsteen singing born to run he looks at me and says ain't but a handful of people in the world can do that i said what do you mean he said get your get the crowd there you know, that, that's the world-class entertainer. Not about playing the guitar, not about, you know, um, how great a singer you are, but there's something about that connection you build. That audience feels like, man, I'm, you know, I'm on cloud nine. I'm a part of this show. I'm, 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 I'm as much a part of this as he is. And, um, and I said, what do you mean, man? I mean, what do you mean when you say only a few people in the world can do that? He said the connectivity, the relatability, it's unspoken. But, but there's something about those kind of people that inspire others to follow. You know what I mean? To say, um, I'm, I'm going to see the Stones, man. Why? Because Keith and Mick are there. 
You know what I mean? And I, I want to go see. I know that's a weird conversation, but the tech's kind of um world-class, generational talent. What happened to good, great, really good, damn good? You know, he's really good at it. Um, no, no, we ascribe these um, ah, superlatives, um, but because that's just kind of the way our, um, I don't know, I, I don't want to say our language has morphed into that, but it's just, um, and this is a really good guy, a smart guy. Uh, so and, let me ask you a very, uh, I want you to be objective here. Okay. Bruce Springsteen. He, I mean, most people probably say he's great at what he does. Is he generational, world-class? I think it'll be hard to argue he's not. I mean, of all the prerequisites you listed, I mean, um, fame, notoriety, longevity, respect, um, peer review. Yeah, commercial success. I mean, yeah, commercial success. Oh, yeah. I mean, it'd be hard to yeah. argue. And I'm not as big a fan. I can be objective now because I'm not a blinded That's why I fan. wanted to ask you the question. Yeah, I mean, I think it would be hard. Despite my falling out with Bruce, it would be hard to argue that he's not a generational talent. That there's no doubt about it. Um, and that's kind of interesting. So if we put a category of great performers, entertainers, singers, songwriters, and then we put, you know, the um the uh the generational, the world class, um, I mean, obviously the the list gets shorter and shorter. I mean, a good rock and roll bands, we could go on forever. Great rock and roll bands, it would be a long list, but we'd run out sooner or later. Generational talents, world class. But I mean, that's when we really got to get our heads together and say, I don't know about Mellencamp. I mean, Mellencamp's great, no question about it. Had commercial success, has had longevity, is a is a very noted entertainer and performer, but generational. Mm, I mean, McCartney and Lennon, no doubt, right? I mean, uh, the Stones, no doubt. Dylan, whether you like it or not, no doubt. I mean, I think Springsteen, whether you like it or not, no doubt. The, the fun debate would be on the ones there is a debate to be had. Madonna. I mean, is Madonna yeah. a generational talent? I mean, her 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 commercial success says yes, yeah. right? Cult- cultural influence, cultural influence, longevity. Um, she's maintained her appearance better than most women her age. Um, <laughs> dare I say, that would probably be um, the, the 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 um the testosterone in me that says that says that. But time's been kind of Madonna, right? I mean, I don't argue that her having her own nutrition and you know fitness specialist yeah. probably yeah. helps a good helps. bit. Uh, I can hear women now say, well, if I had somebody fixing my food and, and telling me to work out, you know, if I had all that money, I'd be, well, maybe, maybe not. Um, you know, you, you know, Madonna's had commercial success because I remember reading in USA Today that somebody fired a gun from one of her, um, on her property from one of the guards outposts to another. So when you live on a property that has multiple guard outposts and somebody shoots a gun from one to the other, you know you've made it commercially. Yeah. Um, Madonna, is she, and then we'll take a break, is Madonna generational and world-class or simply great? I've got to say generational. Okay, but we would agree that that's a, yeah. that's a kind of a fair, yep. I mean, that's and, rare air. And, and, because, and, and it's interesting for us because she's out of the rocket. We're having the discussion about, the Beatles and Rolling Stones, but you have to acknowledge that on. Okay. How, you get me going here now. Okay. How much is legacy accounted for? I mean, the legacy you leave accounts for what? I think a lot, a lot, a yeah. lot. I mean, we still talk about McCartney and Lennon, right? I mean, we still, I mean, I'll say that those two names as much as I do the Beatles. In fact, I'll probably say McCartney and Lennon more than I do the Beatles. That is a legacy that is multi-generational and they were a band or they were active together 
for a few years in the late 60s, and this is 2022. And, and look at the legacy yeah. they've left. Um, I'll say this. Had they not broken up and added to the mystique, they probably would not have as much legacy as they do. It's a little bit like the unknown. You know, what could have been. I mean, the legacy of what could have been is probably more powerful than the legacy that the stones are the stones. I mean, they ain't much they could have done that they have not done. There was so much the Beatles could have. And I think when you debate the Stones and Beatles, the debate ultimately comes down to what one band did and what the other probably would have done. Take a break. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Dan in Florence. Good morning. You're on the air. Hey, 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 Ken. Um, and uh, well, I was all ready to talk about the oil market. Um, I had a great discussion the other day with a chemical engineer that actually works in the petroleum industry, but um, and he told me some fascinating stuff um, about how that market works. But uh, just to keep it on the light side, uh, he talked about world class. Um, I when in the early nineties, I was working for a company. We had about 10 employees and he said, we want to create a world-class product. And that's the first time I ever heard that term. And, uh, I thought world-class, I said, we got 10 guys sitting here. Um, you know, I don't even know what that means. And I think that's the crux of it. Nobody really knows what it means. It's just, I think it's a term that has no definition, but it means really good or top of the top of the list or, you know, um, but I mean, there's no definition for world-class. Um, I just remember the other day, well, not the other day, but a few months ago, I remember Dion Washington, I'm Dion Sanders talking about there's too many damn people in the NFL hall, hall of fame now, you know, they just said they're throwing anybody that, that played, played well, that played a few years in, in, in the hall of fame. And uh, it's kind of like that. It's like, you know, world class. What does that mean? Hall of Fame. What does that mean now? Uh, and, I, you know, it's just one of those terms that, that used to be, you know, you kind of kind of halfway knew what it meant. But now they, people throw it around for, for anybody that's, re, that's really good. And uh, that's, that's just my two cents on that. Thank you, Dan. That's kind of an interesting take. Um, being in a company, the company says – I want to build a world-class business. I mean, I've said it before. You know, I want to build a world-class business. I want to have world-class service. I want to have, I mean, that, that would be best in category. You know, best is the standard as a Gamecock football fan. I mean, I'm concerned whether or not they're committed to being a world-class football program in a conference of malcontents. I mean, the SEC is full of a bunch of malcontented people who will do anything it takes to be world-class and win. Um, and once again, when I think of world-class, I mean, when Dan speaking, I'm thinking of Tiger Woods. I mean, Tiger Woods, there was no doubt. I mean, Tiger Woods was a world-class golfer. Um, was Tom Watson a world-class golfer? I mean, he won, what, eight majors? I don't know. I mean, it's, it's Roger Federer spent 237 weeks as the number one-ranked tennis player in the world consecutively. I mean, I think he was number one in the world over 300 weeks, but for 237 weeks, I mean, is that world-class? And, and and the point Rev and I are trying to make, and I think the point Dan's making, we're, we're lumping, I mean, world-class should be set apart. I mean, it should be the best of the best. And I think that's what Dion's talking about, the Hall of Fame. As much as I love Dale Murphy, I don't think Murphy should be in the Hall of Fame if the Hall of Fame is exclusive. Now, if the Hall of Fame is watered down and every good player from his era, every really good player from his generation are to be included in the Hall of Fame, then it's kind of an inclusive model. I think world class, I think the more exclusive we make world class, 
the more it matters and the more it means. And I think Lennon and McCartney are world class. I think Dylan, I think Springsteen, I think uh, Tiger Woods. I think, you know, some of these folks that are, I mean, it, I mean I'm mean, i not saying there's no debate to be had. You could always debate. But I think, um, I think we are more willing to accept someone or something as world class, whether it deserves it and has earned it or not. Um, I'm thinking of a company. What is a world class? I mean, Apple has changed our life. Microsoft has changed our life. I don't know if they're world class companies or not. There was a day that you would refer to G, uh, General Electric as a world-class, iconic, um, global conglomerate. Um, not so much today. Can you be world-class and lose it? You know, can you as, as a company, I mean, can you be a world-class organization and something happened? Change of CEO. Change they, of, they used to be world-class. Yeah. I mean, there you go. They used to be world-class. Now, once again, in the, in the world of music or, or, or golf, I mean, Tiger Woods' his legacy is yeah, well, world-class. Once class. you've earned that, no, yeah. but To me, once you've earned that status, and I guess what the point I'm making is, I mean, whether, whether there, there's a lot of places and people we can debate. I don't think you can debate Tiger. I don't think you can debate Lennon and McCartney. Um, a lot of these others, yeah, you know, you, you can debate, Did they did, were, were they always world-class? Um, but, but Dan makes an interesting point, because as a business owner, it's always been my burning desire to be better than everybody else. I mean, that's how you, you know, earn your keep in the marketplace. That's how you survive in the world of commerce. Um, but we did all of a sudden start calling it world-class. Um, Herschel Walker talking about the Georgia Senate race. I mean, I remember the, I mean, Herschel was a generational talent. I mean, he was just different. Nobody that big was nobody that fast. Nobody that fast was, was that big. And, um, and next thing you know, we're talking about, he is a generational talent. Um, you're right. There is no, exact definition, just a lot of pontifications. Enjoy your day.